The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are our own or those of our guests and in no way represent the views of the companies, associations, or organizations that any of us may work for or represent. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they were told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast that explores the many pathways to an aviation profession, the challenges that a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, a professional airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. Welcome aboard Flight 111, the Squawk Ident podcast recorded on the 8th of June, 2022. From the mobile Aviator Sound Studios high up top, the 25th floor of the Prince Waikiki Hotel on the island of Oahu. On today's flight, Alex D and I will discuss his progress at Sandpiper Airlines, initial ground school that he's in, and the CBTs that he's working on. We also have more exciting audio feedback from Captain Rogers' corporate flying adventure as he checks in with us from Sicily, Italia. But most importantly today, we are very excited to be joined by a guest whose journey in aviation is just so impressive. He was a wide body pilot, podcaster, and film producer. His journey in aviation dates back to the 1980s where he graduated from San Jose State University with a Bachelor's of Science in Aeronautics, Aviation, Aerospace Science, and Technology. He continued his education, earning a digital media degree. It is also of no surprise that he is a consultant at Eon Reality and VP of Renzone a digital media, analytics, and higher education company. And he is the creator and host of the Klezmer Podcast, which highlights Klezmer and Jewish musical artists from around the world. And as if that was not enough in his spare time, he captains a 777 at Legacy Airlines, the alias to our employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. He holds type ratings in the DC-9, the 75, 76, and of course, the 777. Captain Keith Wolzinger, will be joining us today, so stay tuned as we run our final checks and prepare to push off the gate. Flight 111 of the Squawk Ident Podcast is officially underway. Joining me today is an exceptional aviator and flight instructor. He is a U.S. Navy Chief Information Systems Technician and a First Officer at Sandpiper Regional, the alias to one of our Legacy Airlines' wholly owned regional airline. Joining us from the second floor of the Doubletree Hotel in Irving, Texas where he's taking a break from his Embraer 175 CPT studies to be here. Help us in welcoming back to the show, Mr. Alex Daigle. Alex, how you doing? Pretty good, Tony. It's uh, good to be back on. Uh, been a week since uh, we talked and saw each other. Got to run into you at the airport. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. it was. Uh, you said uh, you put out to the group, you're like, hey, I'm going to be in Dallas for uh, airport, uh, what do you call it, airport reserve? Uh-huh. If anybody's in the area, please please stop by and keep me company as I'll be bored for the next three and a half hours. Yeah, um, and that was actually the following day. We recorded the last podcast, uh, 110, uh, and then you know at the conclusion of that, we were going back and forth, and you said, hey, next time you're in Dallas, let me know. If I'm not in class, I'll come do lunch. And of course, the following day, I had the trip and three-hour, like I call, line holder reserve. Uh, you know, you sit in Dallas for three hours, and you're ripe for the picking for crew scheduling to call you and go, hey, we got a crew that misconnected, so we're giving you their flying. And then they have plenty of time to call someone from home, and, and then it can come in, a reserve pilot, and then take over your flying, which eh, the contract, unfortunately, allows for this, and 
that's what we are working on to try to make these improvements of quality of life so that when you start a trip, you do what you're supposed to do unless something like mechanical or weather comes up. Unfortunately, this is more uh, coming across as a line holder reserve. Um, but that time frame, uh, you were just getting out of class and you came <laughs> running over to the airport. We had lunch. It was great to sit down. We actually recorded a little um, a video from the new terminal in Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, unfortunately, uh, after listening to it a few times, there was nothing I can do. Man, that gate agent really was loud. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's probably that new speaker system they have put in there because that whole area is just absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And what was, was that the Charlie gate? Charlie was, 39 yeah, or something like that? Charlie. It was the end of the Charlie's, like 30 something on up. Yeah. So like the last seven or six uh, Charlie gates in it. Beautiful, beautiful. The furniture, yeah. the, the overhead, the boarding signs were really cool how they were integrated leds into the into the walls it's really it cool. makes it so that you couldn't miss a your gate and b what group is boarding and how the standby list like you don't even need to go up to see the agent like, that's that's the incredible thing yeah i think that's the goal is to become like mcdonald's where there is no one taking your order you just push the button as a matter of fact i'm getting off the plane here in honolulu last night and we were waiting for the cabin crew and this uh, elderly gentleman came up to me oh, are you uh you're the crew that flew us over here. Like, yeah, yes, yes, sir. How are you? You know, how was the flight? You know, did you enjoy it? And he says, "Man, he goes, could they put a smaller airplane on this? What happened to the two aisles and all this stuff?" And I was like, "Well, I'm sorry, they put these uh, 321 Neos on here. I know it's a little tight and the seats are uncomfortable, but you know, and yeah, it was <laughs> cool to talk to him. Um, but yeah, he was recounting of a better day when there was a triple seven that went from Phoenix to Honolulu." Uh, but anyway, uh, how's been, uh, how's the progress been so far with your training? Uh, so we got through when you and I recorded, I was in the tail end of my systems courses. Um, I got through systems, um, Wednesday had the FMS lab that next day. And then, um, Friday we had what did we have? Oh, it was uh, uh, the prep day to kind of get us used to what we're going to see in the CPTs and uh, that's uh, cockpit procedure trainers. Uh, gone are the days where you sit in front of like a paper tiger or a hard, like I sent you the picture of your old 145 uh, mm -hmm. paper tiger. They still have them. Oh. <laughs> um, so, uh, but no, it's a, it's an all computer based touchscreen. You have throttles, you have an FMX box, you have everything that the airplane has, just it's all touchscreen. And you go through uh, basically the same thing of what you're going to see when you go into the Sims, just you're not flying the airplane. You're, yeah. you know, learning the box, learning your flows, learning your triggers, learning all this stuff on a flight, if you will. Right. Um, so the first two days were uh, Dallas to Oklahoma City. Yesterday was. Tucson to Phoenix. Today is going to be Tucson to Phoenix, but they're changing things up as we go along. Um, today is going to be more into non ILS approaches. So your RNAVs, your localizer type approaches. Um, Cause the first days were all pretty much uh, localizer ILS style so that we could use the autopilot and have it fly down. And it's, it's, I tell you, this airplane is super, super, super smart. Yeah. Uh, the automation in it is incredible. So yeah, anyone fortunate enough to to go from flying piston powered 
airplanes in general aviation to go to an Embraer 175. I mean, that's trick. I mean, back in the day, <laughs> we were, this is not something that, this was like mainline, basically, the, the type of airplane you're flying now, the automation, the size of it. Um, so it's, it's quite a leap, I would say, in education and muscle memory. And that's what the CPTs are all about, is to establish your muscle memory so that when you're reading on the paper, all right, I click this button and then I push this button and then I verify this screen and I'm doing this stuff in an order. Sure, you can memorize that and you can write all the note cards you want. And you can actually put the paper tiger on the wall in your hotel room and that helps tremendously. But until you get into the configuration of the cockpit as that CPT trainer is made to do with you know lights and touch screens that change and, and get manipulated, now your muscle memory is what you're developing so that when you finally get into the simulator, you're not spending a day just trying to get that muscle memory down. You've already done it. It streamlines the process. And, and the fact that you have that available to you as a tool is, says a lot about the training at Sandpiper, that they really are into streamlining the process and sparing no expense, really, because those things aren't cheap. <laughs> And and that's what and that's what they're trying to go for is um, <clears throat> uh, that's what they're trying to go for is the fact that back in the day when you were going through and even the the guys who are uh, captain upgrades now uh, were saying that they were still using that same uh, device that you used when they trained on the one forty five yeah and it I mean yeah it promotes good muscle memory of like touching the buttons and everything but you're not manipulating the bunches buttons you're not manipulating the switches you're not getting that like oh this actually turns left and right versus you know i'm touching it mm -hmm. so it makes it easier for us as we're, tra we're transitioning that this whole time right now is to prep us that's literally all it is is to prep us for when we go into the sims yeah so that way we're we're not we're not on the first day you know wasting an hour and a half trying to program a box we're you know yeah. actually getting in and flying the airplane and doing the lessons and all that stuff. And at the same time, it also puts a little bit of pressure on you because now that first time you're in the sim, there's this feeling of, okay, I should, I should be able to get in here and it should be a seamless transition versus when I was doing this, um, you know, you'd get in the simulator and the first day you were just there looking around going, wow, look at all the pretty lights, you know? Um, and, and the instructor knew that. And that's what, the whole point was so yeah it's, it's fantastic to hear your progress uh we look forward to hearing more about your progress here as uh the the shows are now starting to come out maybe with a little bit more frequency um but yeah thank you so much for sharing that with us hey you're welcome that's why I, part of the reason why i agreed to be on the show was to share my progress and journey for the next guys coming through yeah and, and you know roger uh, wanted to be here he is back from his his tour uh, all over the world his global a two-week event. Um, but yeah, I, we went back and forth this morning and, and he's just not adjusted to the time zone changes yet and uh, needs to catch up with his family. So um, we're, we're very fortunate uh, that he did send us some more audio feedback. It's actually a little video clip that he took from Sicily. And I'll just play that for you right here. Good morning again, Squawk Ident. This is Captain Roger. This time coming, coming to you from Palermo, Sicily, Italia. Got up extra early again this morning. Not sure why. I'm wandering the streets, which are deserted right now. 
I kind of always laugh. I was at dinner last night. We showed up at about 8.30 and there was nobody in the restaurant. And they told us that the restaurant was reserved and was full. Apparently they eat dinner extremely late here. And the flip side of that is then that I guess everybody else, they wake up. They don't wake up until 10. So I'm out here by myself at about, I don't know, 6.45 or so in the morning on a short walk. It's definitely an interesting, an interesting place here in Palermo. I can see how it's got some, uh, some charm to it, but uh, you gotta kind of scratch through the initial facade of it since it is kind of old and fairly dirty and it's gonna pass by a couple cars here trying not to get run over all the time because of these narrow streets. So we're only for Istanbul for, I guess for two, two full days, which were pretty full. Into Istanbul was a very interesting city, actually. A city of 16 or 18 or something million people. That was pretty crazy. Um, had, a good, had a good time there. Definitely a much slower pace here in Sicily. The flight itself um, was somewhat interesting. Um, you know, I, I've, I've talked several times before about Europe and the slots and making sure that you hit your times and our passengers requested an earlier departure than what we had already set up and been proved for. And then of course, the traffic in a city of 16 million people, the passengers were then late and we missed our time, which then created a little bit of a little bit of a headache that required calling multiple phone calls and, and emails to, to different entities, getting new slot times and a new flight plan. So if you're ever in Europe, my suggestion is once you have a time, don't change it. Make sure that you get everybody there extra early just to avoid those headaches. The flight itself from Istanbul down here to Sicily was just, just about right about two hours. And then we're going to be leaving to actually come back to the States on Tuesday of next week. Today's Saturday morning right now where I'm at. Still probably Friday evening for, for the rest of the squawk I didn't crew. So we're going to be going back to Trapani, actually, where the airplane is tomorrow. We'll be there for a couple of days. We're going to fuel the airplane prior so that we don't need to worry about it the morning of our departure. And then we're going to be flying from Trapani to Shannon, Ireland, where we're going to make a tech stop for fuel. Actually use the pre-clearance facility that even general aviation aircraft can use in Shannon, Ireland. And then we're going to make the flight from Shannon, Ireland, all the way back across to Atlanta, Georgia, where we're going to spend the night before making the final trek back home to the Southern California area. I'm gonna walk down this one last street here as I make my way back to the hotel, but since I was out, it was nice and quiet. I thought I'd do a quick video update. I'll send this to, to Captain Tony, your ever-present and dedicated host. And hopefully the next time I'll be able to join everybody live. Hope everybody's well. Fly safe. Take care. 
Well, that was kind of cool um, for us here in the uh, in the studio to to see the streets of Sicily early in the morning. Yes, I can attest that uh, we Italians uh, like to have our our evening meal and then walk in the piazza, get some gelato, you know, talk to the neighbors, talk about politics, get your hands up in the air and yell, hey, what's the matter you? What do you think? And then uh, you're out somewhere around midnight, you usually, you know, you're tired and after a couple of shots of grappa, you go to bed or, you know, sambuca or whatever. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, people sleep in usually, especially in the villages, they sleep in kind of late, um, even during the week. But hey, uh, thank you again, Captain Roger, for sending that uh, audio and video in. That was really cool. Yeah, that was that was awesome. It was cool to see, and uh, hopefully we get him back on the show soon. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Well, today we are so very honored to also have on our show a featured guest that has been one of our podcast's biggest supporters. Our journeys collided when he reached out to me online to write some encouraging words about Squawk Ident. Our next encounter happened in the Legacy Airlines LAX Pilot Ops when he introduced himself as a fan. How cool is that? That is when I found out that among the fact that he is a senior wide-body captain at the largest airline in the world, he's also a fellow podcaster. We are honored to have you join us on Squawk Eye Dancer. Please help us in welcoming to the show, Captain Keith Walzinger. Captain, how you doing? Hey, Tony. Hi, Alex. Doing great. Glad to be with you guys. Oh, so we're just so honored to have you on. We've been trying to work out our schedules here for a while. And, uh, you know, I'm just really happy that this worked out. Yeah, I just got off a six day trip, uh, Los Angeles to London, to New York, back to London, and then finally back to Los Angeles. So um, we got a few days off now, so uh, time to catch up. Yeah, and is that schedule something that's pretty typical on a 777 to do back and forth like that for four days? Uh, it's gotten to be more frequent um, in recent months. It has been uh, typically like a three-day trip. You go over somewhere and then you come back. Mm -hmm. But with uh, staffing issues, new routes, uh, a lot of TDYs uh, around the system, yeah, they find it uh, occasionally more convenient or better scheduling practice to uh, pair a double trip so that they don't have to uh, TDY as many people or use so many reserves. And plus with the reduction of our, what was primarily age flying from the West Coast, uh, that's been completely shut off now. Yeah. Um, they're finding other places for us to go. Yeah, it's been quite a interesting juggle of the logistics of running, you know, the world's largest airline. Uh, We've seen that also on the narrow body where we're going into locations that I used to frequent so much as a regional airline pilot. Um, and I mean, I don't mind because it's kind of like taking a step back of nostalgia and, and enjoying, you know, Kalamazoo or Grand Rapids or something for an evening. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting that you've been flying for quite some time. Have you seen this kind of shuffle in schedules before? Not this much. Uh, the schedules for many years were pretty consistent and the airline uh, would, you know, I'd say, you know, dedicate themselves to a particular route, whether they, you know, made a lot of money or, or not so much money. Um, they always had a presence on the route. Now 
they look to see where where they can make money and that's where they fly. Sometimes that's a seasonal thing, you know, summertime destinations to Europe, wintertime destinations to the ski slopes. Um, and then some of the places uh, with fewer places they're flying year round. So they, they and you notice this on domestic as well. There, there's a lot of uh, shuffling of destinations and routes. Yeah. So it, it, it's, um, it's probably better for the airline, probably a little less predictable for the passenger and a little bit less predictable for us as, as crew members. But I think the, the airline is doing a pretty good job of, of maximizing their profitability that way. Yeah. 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 And it, and it I mean, I don't mind it because <laughs> I get to see some places that are pretty cool, but it can lead to some long days. I mean, these, uh, f at least for on the Airbus, you know, five day trips that have dual Hawaii's uh, with red eyes on both ends. It's like, oh, yeah, those are a little bit much on the uh, circadian rhythm. Well, what what gets me now is that you can exceed eight hours under certain circumstances under 117, which eight hours was a hard rule for the whole time I was on domestic. So, yeah, um, you know, that's changed. And I'm not sure that, uh, um, you know, I don't want to be doing that necessarily so much. I don't know how often you exceed eight hours scheduled, but yeah, but uh, I guess you do occasional. Yeah, every couple months, like I think I have a trip at the end of the month. Um, that carries over into July that has one day where it's eight hours and 30 minutes of flight time. Um, and it's just a transcon to Miami and then a, up north to New York. And it's just like, really? But hey, it's legal unless we take a 45-minute delay, uh, slow down the aircraft en route, and then go illegal by the time we land. Just saying. I mean, it could happen. <laughs> but, sir, I, I really appreciate you know, having you on because, man, I was doing my due diligence before the show, a little bit of research, and I, more I kept discovering about your history and your path. I was just so impressed. Now, let's start out with the beginning. How did you come into this passion for aviation? Did it start off like at a very young age? or Yeah, about age five, maybe, maybe sooner. Um, uh, my grandparents lived uh, two blocks off the east end of the runway at Santa Monica Airport. So every airplane that came in to land there came very low over, over their house. And if a Learjet or Gulfstream came in, it literally shook the house. Wow. Um, but, it, you know, I thought it was pretty cool. And the, uh, the airport uh, back in the day had an um, observation deck. And they had a speaker where they would play the air traffic control transmissions. And so you could listen to them and then watch the planes. So my grandfather would take me and we'd go for an hour or so and go watch airplanes, listen to them. Uh, uh, and it was right by where the fuel pit was. So people would mm. be fueling up their plane, the Bonanza, whatever they had, and, you know, wave to me up in the, up on the balcony there on the observation deck. Um, and then uh, I grew up in, Torrance, California, and we're a few blocks off the departure end of the runway at Torrance Airport. And um, so every airplane that took off out of there flew over my house. Uh, then when I was five years old, uh, I was my parents uh, on a flight, uh, actually on Legacy Airlines uh, 707 to New York, uh, where my parents were from. And we took off and the 
houses got smaller, the cars got smaller, and uh, clouds were going by, and we came into land, and the houses got bigger, and the people and the cars got bigger, and that was pretty cool. And then shortly after that, we flew on Pan Am 707 out to Honolulu. Yeah. And that's when they let little kids go in the cockpit during the flight and talk to the pilots, and they had a navigator and the flight engineer and everybody. And, you know, they gave me the set of uh, Pan Am Junior pilot wings, and they said, son, one day you're going to be an airline pilot. And I said, cool. Do you still have those wings? I, you know, I have quite a collection of uh, junior pilot wings. Actually, the first one I got was on the Legacy Airline 707, and uh, it was a ring, a junior pilot ring, uh, like a oh. pinky ring. Oh, wow. Um, I never knew so that. I have uh, some of those. Uh, and uh, uh, the Pan Am one, I have... TWA, I have National Airlines, I have United, um, Alaska, Delta, um, that I, and I still ask my friends if they're going on an airline I haven't been on and say, ask them for some wings to add to my collection. So um, I'm, I'm still collecting. That's cool. <laughs> and then, uh, so, but what actually happened was uh, I, I got interested in aviation and about age 12 i think i started subscribing to flying magazine and when i got to high school uh my high school in in torrent california had a flying club oh. as one of their sponsored clubs uh our uh faculty sponsor was one of the uh government history teacher guys he was a retired uh, air force uh, b24 pilot lieutenant colonel and um, so we had flying clubs. So we would sit around at lunch hours and plot out cross countries. Oh. And he had all these uh, old charts and plotters and, you know, manual for a Cessna 150 and figure out the fuel burn and the time and distance. Um, and then once a month, he'd arrange a field trip to some local uh, uh, aerospace related uh, place. We go to the Tracon at LAX or um, the maintenance hangar. And in those days, in the in the early 70s, um, Flying Tigers, Continental, Western, were all headquartered at, at Los Angeles. So they had simulators and we'd go play in the simulators at Flying Tigers and fly DC-8 simulator around. And we'd go fly the simulators at Western or Continental, see their training facilities. Um, it, it was an incredible experience. Uh, I, I made one friend through a, a CB radio at the time that was a, a 747 mechanic. He took us out to the air, airport, the hangar, the giant hangar out there at LAX and went through a 747 and, um, you know, showed us around. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then when I was uh, 14, I wanted to go... Um, try gliders because uh, you can get a student by license and solo glider at 14 and get a private license in a glider at 16. So uh, I made my dad drive me out to the desert to the glider school out there when I was 14. I took a discovery flight in the glider and uh, said, yeah, dad, I want to do this. And my dad was pretty supportive, but he said, you know, I'm not going to drive two hours every weekend out to the desert so you can go fly a glider. <laughs> so. Um, and I was pretty devastated because then that meant I had to wait from 14 to 16 to be able to solo an, air, an aircraft. So uh, when you're 14, a two-year wait is, uh, 
is like forever. forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I, I was also doing band, marching band in, in high school and our drum major in the high school band was also in civil air patrol cadets. And, uh, he said, Hey Keith, you like, uh, airplane stuff, don't you? And I said, yeah. I said, well, why don't you come to civil air patrol? You're already doing marching bands. So you already know how to march. And you learn a lot of marching in the civil air patrol cadets. Um, <laughs> shout out to everybody in the civil air patrol out there. And, uh, uh, our leader out there was a CFI. He had a and owned a Cessna 150B 1962 model and a 1947 Navion. And he was instructing or offering to instruct um, a handful of uh, kids in the program that he thought would, uh, you know, be good candidates to to go into the flying. Mm -hmm. And um, so at 15 and a half, I was able to start. Uh, my flight training with him. Uh, and he worked uh, it for United as a, a, in a ground position in the, in the cargo department. And uh, so he was, you know, working for United. So he knew all the airline stuff. We, we had a few kids uh, go through the program uh, who went on to airline careers also. And uh, so well, I was 15 and a half. So either uh, my dad would drive me out to the airport for my lesson or I would drive my bike out to the airport for my lesson because it wasn't very far from uh, where we lived. Yeah. Take my lesson. Um, you know, so I soloed at 16, got my private at 17. Um, then went on to San Jose State and uh, completed my program there. And while I was there, I got my instrument commercial multi. And then uh, after graduation, got my CFI, double I, MEI, and uh, Oh, so the USC part of that was the last semester before graduating at San Jose State, you, we were required to uh, uh, present a little report on uh, any graduate school program, just in case. Uh, this was 1979. This was after the energy crisis, the second energy crisis. Um, the, uh, a little extra tidbit was the, the airlines were hiring big in 1978. So a lot of people got hired across the airlines in 1978. In 1970, and I was saying, well, shoot, I'm in school. I should be out trying to get an airline job. So then in 1979, there was the second energy crisis and the airlines furloughed everybody. Oh. Mm -hmm. So then I said, well, I'm sure glad I'm in school, not trying to get an airline job. So, uh, but we had to research a, a graduate school program uh, and it turns out that my uh, one of my Boy Scout leaders, uh, retired Navy pilot uh, Jerry Detweiler, who's still still kicking around. Uh, I hear he's uh, retired, living in Colorado somewhere. Uh, was my old scout master lived on my block growing up, and was working at the USC uh, Safety Department, uh, what they call the Institute of Safety and Systems Management. And uh, so I knew he worked there. So I said, you know, Mr. Detweiler, I had to uh, do a report on some graduate school program. Do you have some stuff you can, you know, let me have and I can, I can make my report. Well, he sent me a packet, you know, this thick of um, their program of aviation safety and systems management. Mm -hmm. So I made my report and of course I graduated the, that year, 1980 and nothing was happening. So uh, I talked to him again and he said, you know, you should come and take our program. So um, basically I got recruited into taking the aviation safety 
um, from him. Yeah. And so I completed that program, two-year program, um, during which time I was also starting as a, a flight instructor, um, which uh, now at the same time, all those airline pilots were being furloughed. So I was going to flight schools in the area and uh, there'd be a furloughed guy from Western, you know, sitting interviewing for the same position. I get right. to talk to the chief instructor and they say, well, how much uh, instruction time have you given? So, well, here's my temporary instructor certificate. Uh, um, haven't, you know, so uh, how do I compete with a guy furloughed from Western for, for a flight instructor job? So I went around and around and I, I, I couldn't get anything. Um, finally, uh, a good friend of mine referred me to the um, Aero Club at Marine Corps Air Station El Toro mm. um, because they had taken over, uh, a, a new manager was taking over their facility. Um, to, to run the flight school. Um, they had an interesting situation because the at the air club on any uh, military base, you have to be based military to uh, to get a plane, rent a plane, or, or teach there. And um, the limitation is that those people are doing it on the side. So if, if they're active duty, their main job is to, you know, be a pilot or, or ground staff whatever and, and be around all the time so yeah. those guys were available like lunch hours afternoons evenings and on weekends well this new manager decided he wanted to have um some full-time people there because he had a big backlog of students that were waiting for instructors and instructors had limited time and availability mm -hmm. so somehow he got uh permission to hire two uh full-time civilian instructors to uh to be there all the time so yeah. he hired hired me and one other uh, civilian instructor. And he said, welcome aboard, handed me a clipboard with about 30 names on it. And he said, start calling people, take as many as you want. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, and, and it, it goes against uh, the rules of new flight instructors. Usually, you know, as you get your first job as a CFI, you get scraps. You're like, well, uh, I'll give you a student. Uh, they're a trouble anyway. I don't want to deal with them anyway. So you get maybe one or two students until more people come in, new new clients come in and say, hey, I want to learn how to fly. And then, you know, if you're there, congratulations, you got yourself a student. But man, to get a clipboard and go, <laughs> take as many as you want. <laughs> Talk about I, mean, I, I had a similar experience to Keith on that when I got my first instructor job. They had a, a handful of students that we only had one other instructor when I started there. Oh, wow. So basically, I got handed a sheet just like Keith and said, here, start making phone calls, pick who you want. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and it's very interesting to hear your story because I had a conversation very recently, yeah, on the flight deck at Cruise when we had nothing to do for five and a half hours, about how we can fix this problem. And it, it got kind of heated. We were both on the same side of the argument, the captain and I. Um, and we were saying how this debate that is happening right now, whether or not Congress will pass a law to extend the retirement age from 65 to 67, inevitably all it does is kick the can two years down the road. and It doesn't solve the problem that we have a huge pilot shortage. Now, the, the people that I think have a good perspective on what's really going on realize that there is not really a pilot shortage in the sense that the management at these major airlines around the country and around the world could pull resources and hire more and and pay more but even that argument is relatively weak because you can pay us 
you know, a little bit more, give us these bonuses to come on to a, a regional. And you're, you're, all you're doing is poaching from one regional airline to another going, oh man, did you hear that bonus over at, at Sandpiper? And so maybe someone from like Mesa or SkyWest or who knows some other airline or regional airline might go, hell, I'm going to go over there because I'm not under any kind of contract. I'm going to go get those bonuses because I'm going to, I have my time. I'm going to flow pretty soon or I'm going to get a job soon anyway. Again, that doesn't really solve the problem. It's only delaying the inevitable. What we need to do collectively in this industry is to get people who are not already in aviation interested in it. That's part of the reason why I do this podcast is to explain what we do here when you've made it to the tip of the pyramid and you have that dream job at a legacy carrier and how we got here. That's why I find these stories just so enlightening. And the program that you went through in high school, I mean, Alex and I are sitting here just so impressed, you know, you can see it on our faces, that a high school has a program about aviation and learning how to do performance numbers and flight plans and things like that, which then gets the student, the young student, interested in things like math, science, STEM, basically. Um, instead of just throwing a, a computer or a tablet in front of them and going, have fun, um, this is actually what needs to happen. We need to bring these programs back into our schools at an early age to get people excited that then can then follow a path that will lead them to a career in aviation. Maybe not an airline career, but a career in aviation nonetheless. That will increase our pool. Unfortunately, that's not a, a quick fix. That is a, okay five years down the road, 10 years down the road, how are we going to have the fill of our pilots as these, these other pilots retire? We're going to need to replace them. How do we do that? Well, if the pool is limited, you know, you're going you're gonna to end up draining it. Um, we need more people to jump in the pool, more youngsters to, to say, hey, uh, man, airplanes are cool. How, when's the last time someone came up to the flight deck before the flight and said, Oh, Captain, can I, can I bring Johnny up here? And Wow. I mean, it happens so rarely. It used to be every leg, every flight, had a parade of kids coming up just to take a picture with the captain. Keith, when's the last time someone came up to your flight deck? Uh, this last trip. Uh, oh, did they really? came up, he had like a two-year-old uh, girl. And, um, you know, wanted to show her the cockpit and everything. And, and uh so the, of course the girl was a little shy, but I so I had um, the dad sit in the in the captain seat with with his daughter, and we took some photos. And um, yeah, it 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 still happens um, a little bit more now that I think people are traveling more in the summer season. Mm -hmm. um, it hadn't been happening for a long time, and of course we had no passengers for over a year with the uh, with you know flying cargo only flights uh, overseas. So yeah. Um, but yeah, and I still out hand out uh, the little log books and the little wings, and and uh, you know, um, uh, people are glad to receive them. Yeah, so that's the difference uh, between the uh, the other because airline, I feel like it, wide it, body. It, you know, if I hand out a pair of wings <laughs> to some kid, you know, and say you're going to be pilot one day, start taking your flying lessons, uh, you know, maybe it happened to me, it could happen to them too. Yeah, yeah, and I'm so ha happy to hear that because I think with the domestic routes especially when you're doing three legs in a day and it's go, 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 and you're doing aircraft swaps and you only have 45 minutes or whatever. And, you know, you're, you barely have time to brief your cabin crew prior to departure, let alone have people parade through the flight deck and take pictures and stuff. So, so to hear that 
that's still going on, at least on, you know, select flights and, and the wide body equipment um, is actually just superb. And thank you for sharing that. <laughs> now, let's get back to your, your flight experience. And we, we picked up, uh, or we left off where you were a CFI uh, in a military environment as a civilian. How was that instruction? Was that a benefit to a new CFI to have someone who is like military trained to come in and be more, I don't know, maybe organized and dedicated? Uh, well, most of the students I had were not military pilots, right? So um, some of the pilots were instructing and some of them would kind of get checked out um, to go take their family out, for example. Mm. Um, but I'll tell you, one of the scariest things I ever did was try to check out an F-4 Phantom pilot in a 172. <laughs> um, because uh, the, some of the military pilots that didn't come from a GA background um, had minimal time in a T-34 or something, and, they, and then they put them in a jet right away. So they didn't have much, uh, you know, single-engine piston time. And so... Um, you know, I'm checking this guy out on 172, he's coming in at like 100 knots and wondering, hey, how come this plane's not landing? Said, well, about 40 knots fast. <laughs> you know, he was afraid to fly less than 100 knots. So, um, you know, phantoms don't like to fly very slow. So, um, you know, I, I, I learned about that, uh, you know, pretty quickly. But most of the students were um, enlisted people, um, mechanics or, uh, you know, the line kids or um, anybody that had a connection to the federal government. So there's like, a, you know, flight service station employees, FAA employees could come and take lessons. Okay. Uh, I had one student that was uh, uh, one of the tower controllers at El Toro. So there was uh, uh, all kinds of uh, people coming through. Um, uh, one, one other uh, cool little story is uh, at, at, at the, Marine and Navy bases, they have uh, a, a painted, a shortened portion of the runway that simulates uh, an aircraft carrier. It's about 300 feet long. And um, so they have like full arresting cables and they have uh, the, air, the aircraft carrier uh, mirror system for, for landing that, that you can play with. Um, and so I had one student who was a, a college student in the um, Marine Corps PLC program, which is the PLC is the, the Marine Corps version of the um, uh, ROTC. Okay. And uh, he was going to go uh, and graduate and go be, uh, you know, Marine Corps pilot. So I said, well, okay, you're going to be a Marine pilot, probably flying an F-18. So I'm just going to train you to land on this aircraft carrier deck. And we did all our landings, all our practices. You know, it's an 8,000 foot runway there, but we're using 300 feet of it for our touch and go practice <laughs> and he got to a point he just nailed it he you know he even did his first solo just on that carrier deck oh wow <laughs> so uh and when somebody doesn't know any better or you know any different and you you, you train them to do something they pick it up and they do it and they don't um yeah. you know question so it it was an experience for me that i was able to teach somebody from zero to do that and said, you know, you're going to do great in the Marines. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. Um, I've never heard that. Uh, and it's just, was it like the first 300 feet or something painted that way? Or was it yeah, a separate it was, uh, area? Yeah, it was a painted carry deck. It had, had 
um, uh, thicker stripes uh, on the side. I wish I had a, a photo of it somewhere uh, and had uh, thicker uh, centerline stripes, but it was off to the, the left side of the runway. Oh, so it was okay. like landing on the left half of the runway, basically, mm -hmm. um, for that 300 feet. And um, so we watched the, the military guys doing this because they, they call it FCLP fleet carrier landing practice. And they would have to do this on a routine basis to before they would go out to the carrier to qualify for their landings. Mm -hmm. So you watch them uh, come in and uh, hit that uh, simulated deck and then do their touch and go, which is a very short touch and go, not like we do in a, in a Cessna. They, they basically hit, add full power and take off again right away because you only have a 300 foot runway to, to play with, right? And they got plenty of thrust. So, uh, you know, they hit the, hit the carry runway and take off real quick. So yeah. it, it's, uh, you know, things to watch. Now, the other thing that was impressive was teaching how students how to blend. You know, we think about going to, um, you know, uh, Orange County, Long Beach, someplace where there's uh, some airline traffic, San Jose, uh, and you're teaching a student. But when you're teaching a student with F4s, A4s, A6s, C130s, uh, occasional C141 or a C5 or something, and teaching them um, how to cut their base short to come in close behind the, the first uh, F4, so the second one that's coming around the pattern at 180 knots is going to run you over. Um, and, you, and do your touch and go, make a quick left turn, get back on down and out of the way so the guy behind you can go you know, blast through. Um, there was a certain technique of just blending with the traffic pattern yeah. um, that we did. And um, we got along very well with the air traffic controllers there. And, and the, the you know, students that did a great job of, of uh, um, blending with traffic. And then wake turbulence from C-130s. I had one student on a solo that got a little bit too close behind a C-130, got some wake turbulence, did a go around immediately, correct choice. Um, you know, no problem. And he said, yeah, I got some turbulence on C-130, so I just went around. Great. Perfect. You could always go around. That's absolutely perfect. Always go around. Yeah. Yeah. So um, uh, it was a great experience for me and, and great training for, for all the students that, that we're going through there. Yeah. And, and I wanted to ask you, um, I know every, I forget how many days the, they update the sectional charts, right? And ever since we went electronic, you know, who keeps track of that kind of stuff? But um, how is that air? So it used to be every six months for the, the sectional charts. Uh -huh. uh, they changed it recently to match the terps of every 56 days. Oh, that's, thank you, Alex. That's, that's great. The every fifty six days. I mean, damn, you you hit that one on the head. That's great. Um, so so every fifty six days, you got changes to your sectional charts. How was the airspace back in Southern California back then compared to how it is now? Is it pretty standard, or has it changed significantly? It's changed. So um, when I was starting to fly, uh, we had uh the terminal control area which is was the class b now <clears throat> and uh that was pretty much it we had we had a, a vfr corridor over lax and and not much else there was no class charlie airports they had uh 
uh, what was it called? Uh, it was the radar? Uh, yes, TRA, TSA, TSRA, something like that. Yeah. It was um, terminal radar terminal approach. TRSA, terminal radar service area. Service area, yeah. So and it was advisory in nature and not a requirement. So yeah. um, they had one, I think, in Ontario and Burbank. Um, uh, Orange County did not have one. Um, so you could, you could use it. You could not use it. It, it didn't really matter. Um, and then later came the, uh, the mode C 30 mile veil after we had a, a major, uh, incident, uh, in Southern California here <clears throat> where a DC nine collided with a, a single engine plane, uh, who was squawking, but not squawking altitude apparently. And. So the controller got busy and didn't point out that traffic to the to the airliner. So that, that gave the us one that happened miles. in Torrance. Uh, that was one in Cerritos. Okay. And uh, so that gave us the thirty mile veil of requiring uh, mode C operations near the class class Bravo airspace. Mm -hmm. So all these things have slowly creep creeped along and and increased uh, the complexity of the airspace, right? So, uh, and of course, as, as usual in aviation, it's due to some fatal accident that, that created this. We got uh, terminal control areas and class Bravo af after um, the PSA uh, accident in San Diego that kind of created that. Because uh, again, a, a single engine plane got in the way of the airliner and, and caused a crash. So they decided that you know, everybody need to be controlled and separated by the controllers in, in the airspace. And, you know, it's, it's a good idea because at the time that we didn't have the technology, um, you know, that we have today. So that was the best way of, of doing it. So yes, the airspace has changed quite a bit. Yeah. But when, when you're learning to fly, you learn to fly with this airspace and it's, it's not really that big an issue. It's kind of like when you learn to land on a 10,000 foot runway and then you say, well, today we're going to land on that 300 foot strip and you get really good at it. Then the 10,000 foot runway looks like an antiquated, you know, <laughs> field in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and it's the same with the airspace, I think, is that because uh, I can remember, you know, back 15, 20 years ago, whenever I was doing any kind of GA flying, uh, going into Southern California was like something that you really had to prepare for because you're talking to SoCal under positive identification and, and squawking and uh, altitude alerting um, or altitude squawk. And then you're told, all right, uh, yeah, we you know, radar contact, uh, fly this heading, intercept the 360 from the Santa Monica VOR, fly it outbound, climb, maintain 4,500 feet and intercept uh, this radio and then fly that westbound. And, and you're like, wait, I'm sorry, a student pilot, what? <laughs> <laughs> it could be very intimidating. So, um, but I can imagine uh, back then, maybe the airspace wasn't as as busy, as restrictive, and you know, flying a VFR corridor was not even a thing. And then, as we've developed over the years, the the FARs. I know that they use black ink in there, but really, I mean, it's all been written in blood, and every rule is there, usually as a result to some kind of major accident. Um, so yeah, thank you for sharing that that wonderful insight about the airspace. 
you know, there was another rule, which I think is still in effect, that, that student pilots are not allowed at a class Bravo airport. Um, right. That's a restriction. No? Yes? With an endorsement. Okay. Oh, yes. You can have a um, class Bravo endorsement. Right. Right. So, uh, but I but I used to take uh, commercial students and make a landing at LAX um, because, uh, so, well, you know, you have to be able to blend with the traffic and, uh, you know, 120 knots till short final, uh, you know, and. And I used to, uh, my job after uh, instructing in El Toro was was uh, uh, 135 uh, little cargo operation uh, that we had. And I was flying an A36 Bonanza uh, five days a week between LAX and Las Vegas for a feeder contract to Airborne Express. So I'd be flying a Bonanza every day in and out of LAX. So, you know, um, wasn't too uncommon at the time either. Yeah. I think my dad was doing not... Um the the bonanza feeder to uh vegas but he was doing at some point uh gold running gold and silver running out of the the vegas mines out of a bonanza in the southern california area and it was uh yeah interesting to say the least yeah. wow well uh, so I, I did the the bonanza cargo run for a while then i moved up to a, a twin cessna 401 that they were running also a, a cargo run from Los Angeles that would stop in Santa Barbara and then Santa Maria and come back each day. And, oh, wow. um, and of course you sit around all day where you're going and then wait around till you have to return. So um, one day I was on that one in, in Santa Maria and the uh, airborne express delivery driver that I was friendly with said, Hey, why don't you just ride along with me for the day and, and go around my route? Well, his route included going to Vandenberg Air Force Base and doing a lot of deliveries there. And uh, so we went and drove around Vandenberg Air Force Base, and this was uh, 1982. And, uh, and he said, well, uh, you know, they built this new uh, space shuttle launch uh, complex over here. You want to go see it? And, well, yeah, because at the time, NASA had planned to launch space shuttles from Florida and from the West Coast. And uh, so they built uh, an exact duplicate of their you know, launch complex 39A, whatever in in, uh, in Florida, and they built the same thing in in Vandenberg that was never used. But he drove up, and he you know he waved to the guard because it's not being used. Nobody's there. Nobody's doing anything. We drove up right up to the pad. Uh, <laughs> you look up at the at the the launch uh, site there, and and you know all the concrete uh, you know deflectors where the exhaust comes out when they're launching and everything is. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, See, it's jobs like this that you get when I, I hear all the time from when, say, the older generation of pilots that just don't exist today. Like get, doing these little cargo runs, doing, you know, flying uh, bank checks, which that's non-existent right, anymore. Right, right. You know, uh, that like... Photograph negatives. For us. They used to fly film, film negatives around to get processed. Yes, like these jobs don't exist for the 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 new gen like people like me. I either right. have to get an instructing job and work my way up to where I am now, or I get lucky and start making connections like the uh, office manager at my old flight school who got a, a right seat gig out of a Falcon 90 at like 400 hours. Yeah, which doesn't happen. Right. So, so the 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 good thing and the bad thing about today's pipeline if you will is you know it's a more streamlined to the airline cockpit um 
which was our goal as well. Just we didn't have the pipeline. We, you know, you took this job and then, okay, you know, you'd fly a twin here and okay, you can fly a turboprop here. And step by step by step, which was kind of haphazard, but you've eventually made it to the, to the major. And uh, yeah, today, it, it, um, you know, you can do it a lot faster. Um, yeah, you know, so I went from soloing at 16 to the to the major at 26. Now, to me, that was a 10 year span. Um, as far as the flight training goes, today you can do that in three years. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that was a question I wanted to ask you: is how long did you flight instruct? I mean, at that time, I remember it was it's to get about a job a year and a half. A year and a half. That's oh, not, wow. That's not actually that long. That's, yeah, that's yeah, not that from bad. From like January of 81 till uh, summer of 82 when I started that uh, uh, Bonanza job. But as you're mentioning, so, that's not, that's, that's the nexus that's changed because now in this day and age, you can go from flight instructor into a regional airline. That's, that's the next step because the days of flying gold and silver and checks and banks and all that stuff uh, and newspapers, those days are over. And so, you're going straight from pistons to jets without uh, in the turboprop step, which most of us uh, went through a turboprop job at some point uh, before the, the majors will look at you because it, traditionally at that, in those years, they were taking like 80% military people and 20% civilian people. But by the time I got around to it, the airlines were expanding again, like, like they are today. We're hiring a lot of people in a short amount of time across all the airlines. So it was about an 80% civilian, 20% military mix because the guys couldn't get out of the military fast enough to take the jobs. Yeah. So, and, uh, and that's what I feel I kind of lack is I wish that the generations now we could go in from something in between the CFI realm into, you know, a single piston or a piston twin into something a little bit more advanced, I'm not right. saying go completely into, you know, into a jet but like you know a turboprop a king air doing something like that and then go into the airlines because I, I, the fire hose when you're in here and you're getting into that jet world going from i'm flying a 160 horsepower 172 around to now i'm flying a jet that has thirteen thousand pounds of thrust out of each engine it's a, it's a big 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 jump it is but anybody. if you're right. landing so, on a 300 so foot strip as the standard your skill level just happens to go there. Yeah. So then very quickly, uh, in, in 1983, I was having three jobs. I was doing that uh, twin Cessna cargo run. And then I, uh, because once I had a 135 uh, qualification letter in, in 400 Cessnas, you're qualified in all the 400 Cessnas. So I started applying around to other 400 Cessna operators, and I ended up at, um, Air Nevada out of uh, McCann Airport in Las Vegas flying the Grand Canyon tours. Oh, yeah. Mm. So that was a really super fun job. And I did that for <clears throat> the summer. Uh, and then I got to, because um, uh, I had another friend that was there already at Pacific Coast Airlines in Santa Barbara, California. They were flying the older Hanley Page Jetstreams, which were from the 1960s, but the predecessor to the Jetstream 31 and Super 31, whatever. Um, they had later. And uh, so I flew that for about a year and a half uh, from the fall of 83 until uh, spring of 85 when I got picked up by the major. So um, when 
when uh, when I, I mentioned that that last class I had at, at San Jose State where they said uh, to research a graduate program, they also had us um, write a paper on what we thought we would be doing in five years after graduation. And we all had put that we would be airline pilots in five years after graduation in 1980. <laughs> and the department chairman said, guys, you know, all the airlines have people on furlough, you know, maybe look at another job, air traffic control or working for, uh, you know, Lockheed or one of the aircraft manufacturers, somebody, because, um, you know, this flying thing isn't really going to, you know, pan out for you guys. Well, we didn't pay attention to that. We all just kept flying. And then we all got hired at the, at the majors um, in five years after graduating. So uh, with getting all my other ratings and experience and my master's and, you know, everything else along the way, um, was quite a, and getting hired at 26. How many, how many people are getting hired at 26 at the airline? Um, some people hired at 25, 24 even. So, yeah. it, you know, it was, it was possible. Then we're flying uh 727 engineer. I did three, three flight schools my first year. I did 727 engineer, DC 10 engineer, and then back to 727 FO my first year because things are moving so fast. So, you know, that um, time as a wow. flight engineer, is that, and, and I always enjoy hearing we stories. Didn't have, we didn't have the lock-ins or, or uh, you know, minimum time and seat requirement, anything like that. You you bid whatever you wanted, transfer wherever you wanted. Um, and in, in those days, you transferred and then you kind of negotiated it with the uh, manning department what, what seat you were going to take. Um, so, that, you know, if they have room for you uh, at the base, then you say, okay, well, let's see, what, are, what seat are we going to put you in? Oh. So that, that was a little bit of a negotiation too. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the diversity aspect of, of, of all this stuff because the diversity is um, a big thing today. Mm -hmm. uh, trying to get people that aren't normally thought of as uh, pilots again in, in piloting. But in my experience, I always had diversity in, in, uh, in my career. Uh, one of my Instructors early on uh, from instrument rating uh, out of John Wayne was uh, a, a wonderful female instructor I had, um, which I didn't have very long because uh, she had 500 hours. She got sucked, sucked up by United Airlines really fast. <laughs> but I had her for a little while, and and it was great. And then uh, we had a lot of uh, the female pilots at, uh, at Air Nevada doing the Grand Canyon tour. Mm -hmm. And then when I got to Pacific Coast Airlines and the jet stream, uh, my initial, uh, IOE, uh, check, check pilot when I was, uh, brand new FO there was, was a female who took me on my IOE. Mm -hmm. So all these things, I, you know, I never really thought anything about it because I was, um, you know, that's just who was there. Right. Um, and recently, uh, there was a, a you know, at our airline, there was a big thing about um, uh, Black History Month and and uh, uh, Black History of, of aviation, mm -hmm. and um, mentioned about uh, Captain David Harris, the first uh, Black airline pilot that was hired. And as it turned out, when I was doing my uh, 727 flight engineer IOE at age 26. Uh, I flew a three-day trip with him and my Czech airman, uh, flight engineer Czech airman, 
So, and the, the last day of my trip, the chick came and signed me off um, for, you know, going on my own. And so I flew two legs with uh, Captain Harris as, as my captain. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, Captain Harris, great, whatever. And, uh, you know, it didn't, didn't strike me. Nobody mentioned he was the first, you know, black pilot hired at a major airline. Nobody mentioned it. he's just Captain Harris. And he's a great guy. And that was, you know, 37 years ago. Yeah. I think when, when you're living in, in the industry and you're coming up and growing up in it, um, because at 24, 26 years old, you're still growing up in it, um, and you see this, and this is the norm, and I feel the same way. It's like I never really thought anything about it, and then all of a sudden it becomes this big deal, and you have this, oh, this is, we got to have more of this, and, and yeah, I agree on, uh, to all of that, but... I don't think we see it as that humility, I think, amongst pilots when it comes to who you're flying with. If you got the skills, nobody cares what color of the skin you have or what your background or your religious belief. I mean, there's a couple things that we joke around about we don't talk about them on the flight deck, right? Guns, religion, and politics. Those three things are off the table because you don't want to have a heated debate with the person next to you while you're trying to fly an aircraft. But all kidding aside, it's so... It's so interesting to hear that back then it was not a big deal. Now we look back and we think, wow, that was a big deal. And we make a big deal out of it. Um, and this whole diversity inclusion, I'm all for it. I think sometimes the companies blow it a little bit out of proportion in order to make themselves look good in this whole woke movement, Me Too movement. And the fact is, we all, we all, eat the same, sleep the same, and, and you know, you know what else. <laughs> so uh, it's so cool that you had that experience and that background. Um, but what are your thoughts? Do you agree that, that sometimes the companies make it a bigger deal than really it needs to be? Uh, or do you think that it's great and we should be pushing more of it? Well, it, it is great. I'm not sure about pushing more of it, but certainly there needs to be more of the what what the local term is uh, underrepresented uh people and getting into the into the industry and i i think you know in the past you know there's been very low percentages of women and and other minorities but yeah um uh you know i i introduced you to one of my very dear uh Pilot friends, when when we saw last the uh, Asian fella, yeah, um, one of the best pilots I know, um, and you know everybody's everywhere. Now, why there's not more of one or another? Some of that could be cultural on their end. I I don't I don't really know. Um, there's uh, certainly people looked at, at me kind of oddly uh, coming from the Jewish community as, as being a pilot and said, what, you're not a doctor, you're not a lawyer, you're not this, you're not that. So <laughs> just, what are you doing flying? And so, well, that's, <laughs> that's yeah. what I like. And fortunately, there wasn't a, a roadblock in any way, but, um, you know, I just was doing the same thing everybody else that was getting into, into flying was doing. Yeah. But I, I just wanted to have you guys have a perspective, you know, because in general, because uh, I, I know you're trying to talk about people's journey as they're beginning their airline career. 
but uh, I wanted to just bring a little perspective on on old guy that uh, that's finishing up and and what it's been like, uh, you know, historically. <laughs> yeah. Um, along the way, and and the way things were done. Now, the other thing you mentioned, we want to talk a little about uh, some of the changes in the airline, and I, I mentioned that. Um, in in a particular TCAS and EGPWS have been the two biggest changes that mm -hmm. that I've seen uh, at the airline. Well, as as well as GPS navigation, we used to use um, the Loran uh, or Loran based navigation yeah. for for long range flying, and uh, um, it, you know it was radio based and atmospheric conditions and propagation and being what they were, um, it it was a uh, interesting way of navigating because the 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 circle of where the box thought you were is a lot larger than what a gps box thinks you are right mm -hmm. um and we we'd have two uh of these uh omega navigation mm -hmm. uh the, the, you know uh, loran was used in ga and and omega was used at the airlines so that omega navigation we had uh, two boxes i flew on the dc10 and um you know, one might say that you're left of course, one might say you're right of course. And so you kind of fly in the middle. And if it didn't know where it was, you get uh, what was known as an ambiguity, um, amber light that would come on. And we would always joke about the the uh, most feared uh, dual ambiguity light where both your boxes didn't know where they were. Oh. So um, very rare, but under certain atmospheric conditions that it, it can occur. <laughs> And then you're kind of just um, wagging your way across to Hawaii from <laughs> from the West Coast. We don't worry about so much coming back because you can always find the West Coast, even if you're a few hundred miles off. But yeah, you'll hit Hawaii. You'll hit it at land. Um, <laughs> not, a, not a good picture. Yeah. And we'll be right back, right after a few words from our sponsors. And now back to the show. Uh, I can say that obviously all that stuff of like GPS and, and everything has hit into the GA community uh, as well. And it, it's changed it dramatically uh, in there. When I started flying back in 2005, when I got my, my private pilot's license, I was in a Cessna 152 with a single comm, single nav radio. And I navigated perfectly fine on paper charts and was able to get from Carlsbad, California to Banning and back completely unscathed. Those planes at that, uh, at that flight school that I was at have all been since upgraded to the, uh, what is it, the 750, uh, Garmin 750 touchscreen GPS single comm. And I'm like, you're spoiling these kids. Like the whole point of having that 152 was to teach you how to navigate and be completely fine on your own out in the middle of nowhere with a VOR, one VOR, and that's it. Like, you know, if you can't get yourself unlost out of that by, you know, climbing and circling and doing all the proper procedures, the, the, what do we call them now? The, the children of the magenta line. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's even evident when you're seeing it in some of the training that we're doing here, they always mention it that like, you know, don't, don't just rely on the box, you know, figure out where you're at and, and how to kind of keep situationally aware so that you don't get yourself lost, that you don't, you know, 
have ambiguity come up and you don't know where you are to to do that but the planes nowadays at least in, in the 175 it, it, it won't ever get lost yeah and children of them should, shouldn't rely on it yeah you were mentioning the children of the magenta line in uh, 1997 there was an american airlines captain warren van D- vanderberg who uh he said that the industry has turned pilots into children of the magenta line, meaning that we're so dependent upon automation that when it comes down to piloting skills, uh, that's becoming weaker and weaker with the advent of technology. Um, you know, why do you need to look out the window? You have TCAS. Why, why do you need to worry about, you know, where I am? People ask all the time, flight attendants will call, ding, uh, a passenger wants to know where are we? What are we over? And both pilots will always look at each other going, um, let me look at my, my navigation screen. Uh, we're 130 miles east of Nashville. Um, yeah, what's this lake address? Um, uh, uh, okay, and then occasionally I'll fly with a, a really uh, <laughs> old-timer that goes, hold on, I got myself my trusty Captain Atlas. Let me pull this out. They pull out this giant laminated chart. And they'll look and they'll go, oh, yeah, that's uh, Lake So-and-so will be gone. Who knows? <laughs> um, but it's so rare. And, and unfortunately, it's part of as we get the technology advancing, the accuracy of, of what we do, the efficiency of what we do gets better. But then we get complacent and we forget about those things. That My instructor back in the, in the 90s was saying, yeah, uh, we're going to turn off that GPS click and he'd turn it off and I'd sit there and I'd have to navigate sometimes under the hood, depending on what lesson we were on. And I'd have to figure out uh, NDBs and ADFs and VORs. And they're like, where are you? And show me on the chart, but don't look up. That was the way I was taught. I mean, that's just not something that maybe you'll do that once in a lesson one time. Um, but yep. it's not something we, we do. Uh, Anybody ever do single, single VOR holding? Yeah, there you go. No, <laughs> didn't didn't ever do that. Thank God. But uh, our our flight school that I worked for before I came to uh, Sandpiper, the most technologically advanced airplane that we had was the one that I took Tony up in. Oh, <laughs> I mean, we uh, let me rephrase that. Our our multi was a a, a G one thousand suited uh, airplane, right? But that's obviously for advanced advanced students, mm-hmm. but. The one that I took you up in, that was our most advanced airplane. The and NAV what it had. Two, yeah. Six pack, NAV two package. Yep. Yep. Six pack, NAV two package, and a DME. That's it. Right? Because yeah. our, our, our chief pilot believed in still flying the traditional ways. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the problem with some of these flight farms, uh, pilot farms, where you go and they're like, oh, we have all, uh, what's it, SR 22 airplanes with the G. Two, three thousand, four thousand. Who knows what they're up to now? And it's all glass, just like it is at the airlines. And you're like, "Hey, this is great." And then you get your pilot certificate, and here you are with your temporary. And you're like, "I'm going to rent an airplane, but I can't afford that one, so I'm going to go pick out that 152 and take my family. We're going to go, or you know, my my brother, my sister, something, and we're going to go get a $500 hamburger over in Tucson. And then you get in the airplane, you're freshly minted. Here you go, and now you're looking at a bunch of steam gauges going. Wow, and your scan's not there because you've been you had a stare 
at the, at the glass. Well, and they, 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 they talked about at one point, and I don't know why they ever didn't implement this of having a, a separate instrument rating for a six pack versus a, a glass paneled airplane. Well, I, I always thought that it should be, um, to get your private, it should be on the traditional six pack. And then you need an endorsement once you've master the that you that you can do the glass cockpit scans and like you're talking like oh we'll get a complex endorsement or a, a high performance right. endorsement glass we'll endorsement g1000 or a glass cockpit endorsement yep that's actually uh you know what we I've need been, to somehow figure a way to get that to the faa i've been saying that since uh, 2004 actually <laughs> and uh <laughs> and then my uh my des and my my pois that i've worked with uh, at the flight school there in arizona they all agreed with me they're like yeah we agree because the g1000 was brand new and we actually had a class that you could take and i taught a couple classes um about how to use the g1000 and for private pilot ga stuff um and i always used to say i'm like hey this is going to be tough when every airplane has this and the flight school is going to sell it like hey this is what the airlines do and people are going to flock to it and get a get a certificate and then they go well i just got my instrument rating and and they borrow their buddies say bonanza and they're trying to do ifr down a somewhere that's imc and they're, they're, it's not going to end well well i've talked to, to kids i say kids loosely i know but uh I talked to kids in a, in training that they're going. I I don't know what I'd do if I ever got into a traditional airplane. I've flown. They they went to a, a puppy mill of a flight school and started on a G one thousand from the day they started to the day they finished. Mm. You know, I had a a, a student of mine. Uh, she was a CFI candidate and she flew up in Washington um, at uh, one of the puppy mill schools and glass cockpits and she came to our flight school because she moved back down to southern california uh and hadn't ever in her entire 300 hours touched a six-pack airplane whoa so it was a hard transition for her because she didn't know what she was looking at yeah 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 definitely uh things to think about for your training if you're thinking about getting out there and getting some training done i've always said it start simple and work your way up to the complex. Um, the Children of Magenta, I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, it's a pretty interesting video. It's a little dated, but it's out there on the YouTubes uh, for everyone to enjoy. It's st it still holds true to this day, though. That's the thing is it doesn't matter if it's, you know, from 97. It still talks true about, you know, the Magenta line and how we're still doing that to this day. Yeah. yeah very how about true. uncontrolled airports? Oh, God, don't get me started. I, that's, where I, that's where I started. <laughs> Well, I mean, and that's fun, I, too, because over when I was at Sandpiper, uh, there were at least a dozen airports that we would fly into regularly that after a certain hour, the tower would close and they would go to an uncontrolled airport. And occasionally you'd get a company-wide email saying, do not land at an uncontrolled airport without communicating on CTAF. And if you need to review how that, how that works, you know, look at your AOM uh, page to so-and-so and, and subsection this and review the procedure. Um, and we actually, I think I've told the story before on the podcast where um, one of my favorite layovers at Sandpiper was Manhattan, Kansas, uh, because it's a college town. It's, you know, it was at Kansas State right there. Um, and if I remember that correctly and saying that right, but uh, it was a great little town. Um, and the tower would have very limited hours. And there were flight crews that were leaving on that 6 a.m. departure and they would taxi out and they would sometimes not announced that they were taxing out, or sometimes they would neglect to turn on the pilot-controlled automated 
airport lighting, which is a violation. You cannot taxi at an airport without the, the, the lighting. And if the lighting is not working and it's uncontrolled, guess what? Now you can't land there. There are other procedures that we had, like if you didn't get the weather before landing, that's another violation. You needed to have the weather. And if the weather, for whatever reason, the AWOS or the ASOS was not working, you were to con call the operations and the operations would, you know, it's a kid working the ramp, whatever, would look outside and go, uh, it looks pretty clear to me. And then, okay, now you're legal to land. And we get an email saying, you have to do all these things because we're so used to getting in our routine, landing at a class Bravo or class Charlie airport on a regular basis. And then all of a sudden it's like, I haven't landed at an uncontrolled airport in two or three years. And now you're like, are we, what are we supposed to do again? You're looking at the other guy, hoping they know. <laughs> so, uh, but so Keith, you you started at Legacy Airlines in was it 1985? 85, yeah, yeah. And a couple of years as a flight engineer, was everyone always selected to start oh, out? Nine months. Oh, nine months. So was that like everybody always started as an engineer, or, or yeah, was everybody that... started as an engineer? Yeah. So that was just you had um, to do your time. And there was uh, what we used to call the two stripers. There was uh, professional flight engineers who were only flight engineers. They, some of them weren't even uh, pilot rated. Oh. And they had a separate union and they had no retirement age. So I'd be flying around with guys, some of them in their 70s as the flight engineer. Wow. So... Uh, you know, when we talk about retirement age, uh, you know, it's relative. You know, a lot of flight tenants that are uh, over 65, shall we say. and uh, <laughs> Smart man. <laughs> uh, you know, they don't have retirement age. So, um, but, the, you know, the, the retirement, somebody decided at the dawn of the jet age that, that it was going to be 60. And, and then somebody decided it was going to be 65. Now, talk around. So. It, it's an arbitrary thing that some government agency uh, decided on, and it's uh, you know whether whether that's a valid way to look at it or not. I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go one way or the other on that. Yeah. But um, but the flight engineer thing, it, it, we, we started as as flight engineers, but we were always junior to these two strike professional flight engineers because they were always you know the most senior people. Hmm. So you really can never hold a good trip. Uh, because those guys were at the top of the seniority list and there was a lot of them. And, uh, so as my strategy was to get out of that flight engineer seat as, as fast as I could. So, um, I, I did, uh, uh, basically four months, uh, no, two months. I did two months as a 727 flight engineer in New York. Then I got a bid to DC 10 flight engineer in New York. And I did that for a couple of months and then I transferred believe it or not, to San Diego when it was a standalone crew base. I put in for San Francisco, Los Angeles, San Diego, just to get back to California. San Diego popped in first. I went back to 727 flight engineer in San Diego for another four or five months, and I got 727 engineer uh, after like nine months with the company. So uh, 727 FO. And um, so things are moving fast. There was people that had been in San Diego had been flight engineer for like 12 years. Oh, wow. Because through furloughs and 
no movement, you know, kind of like things were in, in the early 2000s uh, here. And um, some of those guys could go directly from F engineer and bit a captaincy right there. Uh, but they hadn't touched an airplane in all that time, 12 years, some of them. So the, the airline put in a restriction that, okay, they could bid captain, but they would have to fly FO for six months before they let them go be captain. Yeah. So, yeah, it was an interesting time. Plus, it was all the B scale. You know, we're all, all hired as B scale. All the captains were A scale. And we'd have, you know, FO and engineer as B scale and A scale captain. And yeah. um, there was some discussion about uh, the, the validity of of uh, the B scale concept and uh, their approach was uh, nobody twisted the arm to take this job and you know what the deal was. Right. But, um, but that's, uh, you know, another, another discussion and finally, unfortunately B scale uh, evaporated after a, a couple of contracts uh, after yeah. I got hired. So, yeah. Now let's unpack one thing uh, for the listeners there that maybe kind of know or heard the term flight engineer, but don't understand the concept. What did a flight engineer do in the, on the flight deck? Um, basic job of the flight engineer was the pour coffee for the captain and first officer. <laughs> <laughs> um, beyond that, uh, you ran the uh, air conditioning preservation, the fuel system, the hydraulic system, electrical system. And uh, there was a whole Christmas tree of lights on the flight engineer panel. Uh, which has since all become automated so that uh, you start the APU and, and APU takes over the bus and uh, you got power. Uh, it didn't used to be that way. And you, you, on 727, you start the APU and there was a flashing light and you had to sync the flashing light to the, the generator. And then you, you had to um, trip the, the, the uh, electrical switch on the APU at the right moment when the light was looking the right way, or you'd, uh, Probably the electrical system. <laughs> wow! So um, you, it was a human relay. Yeah. <laughs> um, we we used to joke that it, when when you lost power, uh, electrical power on the seven twenty seven, uh, there was uh, what they called the essential bus, mm -hmm. which is kind of like a, a battery bus or or the uh, you know one of the backup systems that, that we have on modern airplanes, mm -hmm. and uh, the first thing that the captain would call for in that case on first hand checklist is check essential, uh, meaning check the essential bus and make sure that you've transferred power from, from the APU or one of the other uh, power sources to, to get everything powered. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, that used to be a running joke, you know, we just go through the terminal and say to each other, check essential. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, reference to the 727. Yeah. We, we often, take for granted the fact that computers and automation has really taken over the accuracy uh, and the job uh, of the flight engineer. Um, you know, you joked, the first thing I asked you was, you know, what did you do? And you said to pour coffee, but you know, all joking aside, that job was, it was a very technical job that you had to sit there and monitor when you said the pressurization system, you didn't just push a button and everything gets pressure. Every movement of those thrust levers that the captain or the first officer would make while they're flying would then adjust the flow going through the packs. And unless you wanted your ears to be 
constantly hurting in pain because of the pressurization fluctuations, the flight engineer had to kind of keep one eye on the, the thrust lever quadrant and the other eye on the, on the knob on the panel to adjust the flow rate so that the pressurization maintained, maintained a constant. And this is a very technical thing that, you know, we, we joke around that we have glass cockpits and that's all automated. And, you know, all we do is drink coffee and read newspapers and talk about work, work, work. But, but the truth is there was a time when anybody got time for that. It was all constant adjustment, constant tweaks. Like the, like you said, with the APU, if you, if you, switched it over at on the wrong cycle or the wrong phase game over i'm and, not even going to tell you how easy it is for us <laughs> at the, all the, the, <laughs> the real main thing was was the fuel system because if you got the fuel system out of balance and out of with the lateral limits of the of the fuel balance um that was a big problem and some people would uh you know not run the center tank at the right time or not uh, crossfeed at the right time or crossfeed too much or something and, and you have a problem. And then the other thing was it, if you had an issue with some pasture or something in, in the back, the captain also turns around and said, hey, Keith, go see what's going on back there. Oh. <laughs> put your hat um, on. Put your, put your head on first. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, so you go and we would go and address the pasture situation. That's before, you know, and don't go back to the yeah to the cabin or anything but we were the first the first line of defense so if the flight attendant couldn't handle something then the flight engineer would go and you know you could say something to the pastor like well don't don't like don't let me go get the captain you know you just you know <laughs> do what they're asking you <laughs> so usually that's the first the first stop and was the flight engineer and that usually took care of most of the problems yeah yeah, yeah. different time no, different we, time we we have it spoiled now in in the airplanes that that we're in in comparison to all this like for us to turn on the apu like uh, if you look above on the panel up me and get everything going it's literally i click the apu switch turn it to on the run the buses take over and there's a button over here that you got to make sure is in and once the apu's on it transfers the load automatically to the apu don't have to worry about that uh fuel balancing is non-existent <laughs> only thing we ever have to worry about is making sure that the tanks are not running dry yeah it's just it monitoring all this, all this automation yeah yeah now keith you you have a a pretty good career now uh at legacy and how many years do you have left uh slightly over one year oh my gosh it, it, it that just doesn't seem real it's so so little time are there any are there any uh, things that you wanted to accomplish in this time that you have left that you haven't yet? Well, there's some new destinations that uh, they put on our map that I'd like to get to before, before time's up. Um, and some of the ones that they've dropped, like the um, Asia and Australia and things like that, that mm -hmm. I'd like to get back to before, uh, before time's up. But um, yeah, as a, Mostly uh, just the new places that, that I like to get to. Yeah. Now, I've asked a few captains now ever since this uh, article came out a couple of weeks ago about this H-67. And the question is, if they change it, will you stay? That's a, that's a tough question. I don't know. Uh, half of me, well, I have this, the same dilemma with, with 
with the when went from age 60 to 65, right? Because um, you know, when we were all hired, we were intending and fully expected to retire at 60. Then they changed it to 65 and they said, well, now if you retire at 60, that's considered early retirement and you don't you don't get all your full benefits. Mm. So then, you know, unless they offered a early out or some other kind of package, you know, we're all kind of staying to 65 now. Uh, 67, I don't know if that's going to be an expectation or an option. So um, I, I'm ready to uh, find something else to do at 65. Uh, and I know there's a, a few people that would like my seat. So, um, you know, get out of here. Uh, uh so uh, you know, I'm fully cognizant of of the of the the pyramid or the ladder, whatever you want to call it, and and people's expectations of of uh, moving up. So, um, you know, I I, I was uh, kept off the triple seven for a while because of uh, people staying beyond sixty, and and I said, well, okay, I right, have to wait a little bit longer, and uh, I don't want to be an impediment to somebody else's career. Yeah. So you know, I, I I'm planning on finding something else to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I know uh, it's a kind of a debated question that people are still kind of trying to figure out what's going to happen and what are the rules. Now, Alex, I know you got to go. Um, you have some more training to accomplish here. Uh, and so we wish you luck on that. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Keith. It was wonderful to meet you and uh, can't wait to to hear the rest of your story on the, on the podcast. <laughs> Bye, Alex. And good luck with everything. Thank you, guys. Take it easy, Tony. I'll talk to you later. All right. See you. Bye-bye. Now, Keith, uh, a, a couple more things I wanted to talk about um, before we get too far into the Q&A. Uh, one was the long-haul flying. Now, I've, you know, everyone always says, you know, what's your goal? You know, oh, maybe I'll do international long-haul before I retire or something. I've had people tell me, no, you should do it now while you're an FO. That way you, you can kind of enjoy yourself and you'll fly only a minimal schedule and you get maximum hours and, and, you know, you see all these destinations and, um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, is that something that is a lot, I mean, I've heard the, the, the how it's two different airlines. It's, there's the domestic narrow body airline, and then the wide body is the airline side that really gets treated well. Is that true? Well, you, you see it a little bit on the, excuse me, on the international side, uh, flying the Hawaii or you're flying Central America, the Caribbean, whatever. Um, because that's basically, you know, we were flying DC 10 to Hawaii and that was an international division for us. Mm. Um, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on, on what you've seen between flying the lower 48 and, and Hawaii? Well, I think the biggest challenge um, and some pilots get used to these, you know, two or three legs, you're only sitting in the seat for a couple hours, you get to get up, stretch, change aircraft, and they're kind of used to that. And, and they can be home, like, more often in terms of like only gone for two days in their home or um, and, and that aspect, and they're within the States, so they know what to expect. They don't have to deal with foreign languages and all that kind of stuff. And, and what procedures do I need to do when I'm flying into Lima or Mexico City or wherever? Um, and with the, with the long haul, you're, you're doing one leg usually a day and you're in that seat for five, six, seven, eight hours, who knows, even 12, 14 hours, if you're doing like Sydney or something, 
and you have to take the breaks and then you're you're on the backside of these clocks and their circadian rhythm is all off and but it's pros and cons you're dealing with foreign languages and foreign controllers but then at the same time you get there and they see your uniform and they treat you like like you mean something like your royalty uh which is nice to to have that respect that hey i just flew an airplane over an ocean and and yeah i was responsible or partly responsible as a first officer for the lives of hundreds of people yeah thank you very much for looking at me and appreciating what i do and opening doors for me I, I, that's amazing it's not required but it's amazing so i'm torn between the two um i'm not afraid of the the extra legwork that a pilot has to do in terms of what forms might need to be filled out and what are the procedures because i'm always learning and i'm and i'm i love that i i constantly want to be learning uh, I have that mind that needs to be challenged. Um, I don't want to get in this, the routine of doing the same five layovers <laughs> for, for years. Um, so I, I look forward to possibly having that opportunity for long-haul flying. But, I mean, is that an accurate idea of what's involved? Um, yeah. The, the, the main thing is the skating rhythm part of it and uh, whether you're – uh, what I call a good airplane sleeper. Uh, I, I've been since a, a little kid uh, a, a really good airplane sleeper. So I, I get on the plane, I, I go to sleep. Uh, some people cannot sleep on an airplane for mm. you know whatever reason, and, and they don't last very long. I want to say uh, I, I've seen people come over and then spend whatever minimum uh, time they're required to be there and then go back to, to narrow body domestic. And that that's fine. Um, I was loving just flying to Hawaii. And I, I always thought I'd go fly international for a couple of years and then come back to flying uh, the Hawaii stuff and, and uh, finish my career just flying Hawaii. Cause that's, that was really my favorite trip to do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but I'm, Nine and a half years on the triple seven now, and uh, still, still fun, still exciting, still going to new places. So, uh, and I'm a good airplane sleeper, so it, it's it's uh, still fun. Yeah, yeah. It, so I, I think everybody should experience it for some span of time, and then uh, uh, see. The other thing is a lot of the people that came from the military did a lot of international flying when they were in the military. So they did that when they were in their twenties and yeah, they, they, they can take it or leave it. Um, you know, uh, people like me didn't have that opportunity early on. So now is my time to experience that. So, um, you know, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm doing it now. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of people have done it for a while and then, finish their career on, on uh, narrow body. And that, you know, that's, that's fine. That's their choice. They're probably home a little bit um, more with shorter trips. Although now you have four, four or five day trips. So um, I don't know. Most of my trips are three days with the it's occasional six day trip thrown in, mm -hmm. but that's like two, three day trips. So you're not really working more days per calendar month. You know, you're just, you know, maybe a week on week off if you're doing that. Uh, mm -hmm. Um you know, versus say two on three off or something like a, a narrow body schedule would be maybe a, a better, a better schedule. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, 
the operational aspect of that is is what's the interesting because now you have you know more etops more uh, uh, drift downs you, we have depressurization clouds over a lot more places around the world there's more things to take into account and now there's vaccination requirements or isolation requirements um, some places were um, not allowed off the hotel property so uh, you know there's some different restrictions depending on on where you're going so it, it's and they're changing every week so it, it's definitely moving target yeah yeah and, and we get those emails all the time I'm like oh boy here we go um i just saw that uh another destination just lifted their vaccine mandate that they had a, a mandate that if you were not vaccinated as a, a crew member you could not fly there so i mean it's tough you got to keep track of all this you know if you know what you're flying for the month you know great but if you're on reserve on a wide body right now, it's a lot of work because if you get assigned a trip, now you got to go and look to see what the requirements are. And you would think that crew scheduling would be on that. But, uh, you know, you have to make sure that you're good to go. You don't want to have any surprises when you get there. Exactly. Yeah. So you, when we first met, uh, one of the things you told me was, hey, when are you coming over to the triple? And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've, I've, uh, I really appreciate uh, you spending the time with me, uh, both here on the podcast and, and uh, social media and whatnot. We've been going back and forth about giving me some pointers on, on what's involved. What's probably the most challenging aspect, do you think, for a pilot that's you know, just new to the whole long haul thing? Well, the most challenging is, is, is the circadian rhythm part of it Sleep. because uh, uh, the second co-pilot uh, is always on the first rest break, which uh, is always the hardest because that's at the beginning of the trip, right after takeoff, you've got your adrenaline, adrenaline going from getting the trip ready to go and um, all the takeoff procedures, figuring out the rest breaks. And then you're going on break right away. And generally that's at a normal time. Uh, East Coast departures are late afternoon, early evening. Uh, normally West Coast departures are also afternoon, early evening. So you're on a, a, a break for two to three hours uh, at you know five or six in the afternoon. And so then you're, you're back after those two or three hours. And then you have to stay up for the next six, yeah, an overnight flight, um, and you know, be fresh when when you land there. Uh, of course, you're not doing the landing, but you have to, you know, uh, keep up with everything. So, you know, that's probably the hardest job. Uh, and those guys get fewer landings if they are flying that second co-pilot job frequently. So you have to go down to the simulator every ninety days to get your three landings. Yeah. So, um, you know, they, they try to, well, it, it comes, comes into two groups. One, one group tries to fly right seat regularly so that they get enough landings in so they don't have to go to the simulator. Mm -hmm. um, the other half um, do, doesn't want to get landings, so they do have to go down to the simulator. Yeah. Some pain, because that uh... involves usually a <laughs> remove, move from a trip to go do that. Yeah. Um, so I try to accommodate 
both groups to the extent possible. Mm -hmm. um, my last trip, uh, I had a, a, a new first officer, about 100 hours in the in the airplane, and he's uh, what I call a short timer because he got released from his commitment, and he's going next month to uh, Airbus Captain School. Oh, so he's in a strange position, having had just recently come from Airbus FO, the 777 FO, and I was going to, with a short stay to um, Airbus captain. Yeah. And um, low time, 100 hours, not too many landings. And so, you know, I I always uh, offer the leg to the first officer because I know what it was like when I was first officer and captain said, oh, I'll take this first leg and I'll do this and I'll do that. So I always defer to, you know, what whatever the first officer wants. So the first officer, flew the first leg and then we're, we're, you know, coming back from London back to Los Angeles. And, and, uh, I said, well, you know, you're going to captain school here pretty soon. You want to fly again? I said, yeah, that'd be great. So, right, cool. so he flew again. Yeah. Um, I, I tell him, you know, I got plenty of landings and I, I don't, I don't need landings. I'm, I'm in good shape. So, um, you know, guy wants landings and he's low time on the airplane, whether or not he's, you know, leaving the airplane shortly or not, I just let new people fly as much as they want to. Some want to fly, some want to observe. So, um, you know, especially if they're going to a new destination or something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that, that's that's the hardest. Uh, the, the rest of it, the, the easiest is with a, with a four-pilot crew on the flights over 12 hours. We, we get four pilots. Mm. Uh, and then we have an ultra-long-haul agreement that if we're on a flight over 16 hours that it's a second captain and two first officers so it's still four but now you replace one of the first officers with a cat with another captain mm -hmm. uh but on the four crew flight it's a little bit easier because um it's like a double crew uh so instead of rotating around seat positions it it's one crew in one crew on break i got you and then you swap Mm -hmm. So um, you get a little bit more uh, rest break that way. Mm -hmm. On the longest flights, 16-hour uh, flight, uh, each crew, you know, each pair gets two four-hour rest breaks. So um, it, it's it's a, a lot of resting. Again, if you don't sleep well on the plane, yeah, it, it, it's hard to be going, you know, 10, 12, 14 hours, you know, really without getting any uh, uh, reasonable sleep. Right. Yeah. You got to be able to, to sleep in shifts, you know, if you need eight hours uninterrupted sleep to function, <laughs> being a pilot's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then returning from, from, uh, from Europe, you know, it, it's a morning departure, sometimes a 9am departure out of, out of Europe, which is nine hours ahead of, uh, us here in the West coast. So, uh, you know, uh, 9 a.m. departure is uh, midnight, for, you know, body time for us, uh, and then add on to that, uh, you know, hour before pickup, wake up call, you know, maybe an hour, 45 minutes to an hour travel time to get to the airport. So now you're looking at 10:30, 11 p.m., you know, body clock wake up time to start your your yeah. trip. So um, in that case, the first guy on break uh it has a bit of an advantage because sleeping uh during your normal 
rest break. So you, yeah. you try to sleep uh, or take the break that is closest to your home body time. Ah. Um, when I'm going over to Europe, I tend to take the last rest break because it's like normal sleep time on the West Coast. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's it's easier uh, on the body that way. So you have a little stra strategy and you figure out a pretty pretty quickly. Um, if you're going like to South America, there's not that much of a, a drastic time shift. So, yeah. and you're going to Northern South America. So you see that mm -hmm. um, it's just a matter of uh, on those flights, they're, you know, all night trips, both directions. Mm -hmm. So um, again, it's just a matter of being able to sleep, yeah. you know, on your break. And of course there's a lot more turbulence and storms and uh, deviations and uh, difficult communications in South America. So yeah, um, there's a lot more to, to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for sharing that. That's uh, the circadian rhythm aspect of it, I think is, is uh, something that we have a challenge with even here you know, on the domestic or the, um, narrow body side um that's always like the biggest complaint is anytime the schedule messes with your circadian rhythm as a pilot you're the first thing you're going to do is complaining about your schedule what you're really complaining about is the fact that you're not going to bed at a certain time that you're accustomed to that you would prefer to go to bed to and it's going to mess you all up so yeah now let's shift gears for a minute if, if we can um i wanted to talk about your podcast um the, the fact that when we met, you're like, yeah, I'm a podcaster too. <laughs> I started looking at, you know, you've been podcasting quite a while. How did that yeah, get I started? started? In, in 2007. In 2007. And what made you decide to, just because your background in music, that you decided you were going to start interviewing? Yeah, our, our, our music, uh, we've been doing the traditional, uh, what we call the klezmer music for uh, a number of years. And we were... Uh, going for a week uh, each summer to uh, 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 Klezmer and uh, Eastern European cultural uh, camp in, in Canada uh, uh, for a few summers. And we take the kids and the, the kids had a good time and they have all kinds of programs for them as well. But uh, we were taking lessons in this music style from all the best uh, practitioners of, of this style um, that came from all around the world to, to teach uh, workshops on this. And these people were all so talented and they'd gone to music conservatory and they, they're excellent musicians, whatever genre they're, they're doing. And after a, a few years of doing this, I, I thought, well, you know, nobody really knows about these people. Uh, you know, if you go to a concert, it, let's say you go to, uh, I don't know, uh, Lady Gaga concert, right? So you see Lady Gaga and you go home. You don't know anything really about her, right? But if you were taking lessons from Lady Gaga, you'd know a lot more about her approach to music, right? Yeah. So when you're when you're taking lessons from these people and learning their repertoire and their style, you get a, a huge insight into their approach to the music, which you don't get if you just watch a concert. So I thought, well, uh, and I, I had been taping on cassette the, the lessons, and then the MP3 recorder came out. Uh, I got the first Ederol uh, MP3 recorder and 
had like unlimited to me, you know, like hours and hours and hours, you know, 64 gig of memory and God, you could record, you know, 150 hours of stuff with this thing. And uh, so I was recording all, all the, all the workshops. And then I thought, oh, what if I, you know, interview these people and let the world kind of know what made them tick besides just their, uh, their concerts. Yeah. Uh, and then at that time, Apple came out with a thing uh, that was called iWeb, and they came out with podcasting. And um, so I thought, well, I, I just interview these people, and then I can post it, and then that'd be pretty cool, and people would know what uh, what this stuff's all about. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's how I got started. And I, I started with just the podcast of the people that were at the camp. And I did a did like twelve or thirteen interviews that that one year at the camp. And then I I got home, and I thought, well, am I going to wait till next year to interview people again, or you know, find some way of um, keeping this going? So uh, got the podcast going, and I do a lot of traveling. I get to meet a lot of musicians, and uh, um, I take my little MP3 recorder with me and and sit down with people in Central Park in New York or at a coffee shop in London or in the someplace in Paris or Spain, wherever, and um, do an interview. Just, you know, uh, what I call guerrilla podcasting. You're just sitting in whatever, with whatever ambient environment and in New York with uh, sirens and trash trucks going by and people yelling at each other or whatever. Yeah. Because um, it gives a little bit of atmosphere to it. Mm-hmm. And so it was, it was great. Um, and I, you know, write album reviews and put out the podcast so that, uh, because I, I know musicians, uh, unless you're Lady Gaga, you're not making millions of dollars uh, doing this. So uh, just try to help them promote them so that they get a little bit more uh, exposure. Mm-hmm. But I've been on a hiatus for the last uh, three, four years because uh, my website got hacked and spam and oh. malware and all kinds of stuff. So Man. I took it that took that down, and I'm slowly uh, getting everything transferred to the new hosting, the same one you're using, and then I'm going to start up again. Yeah, yeah. Well, over 134 episodes you have up there, um, and like you said, it's like guerrilla style podcasting, but. I, I, the interviews are, are just so interesting. I, I listened to one, uh, Ori Kaplan of the Balkan Beatbox. Yes. <laughs> that was so interesting. Uh, and I really dig the music that you were playing at the end. Um, uh, just what a wonderful experience to be able to do that and use your career and the fact that you're traveling around the world to take advantage of being in these fan, you know, fantastic locations around the world and then finding some kind of cafe or, or club where someone's playing some music and just go for an interview. I found there was, there was a group in Hawaii. Oh yeah. Yeah. Believe it or not. It's a, a doctor on the big Island. Oh, okay. So, you know, uh, could be anybody anywhere. You never know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, but, it's a great, but like you, you know, the interesting question is how do you get started doing closer music? People don't really, unless you're, steeped in the culture you're not growing up with it you you come to it at some point and then you decide oh yeah that's yeah. what you like to do and 
if you listen to any of them, you know, everybody's got a different story and, and it's always um, rather fascinating. And a lot of people from all kinds of cultural backgrounds that, mm -hmm. that are performing this stuff. So um, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a fun community. So between flying and music, uh, you know, I, I get around a lot. <laughs> yeah. Has there been a particular episode that you like stands out for you? That you really enjoy more than others, maybe. Um, let's see. Well, shoot, there's there's so many. Uh, the Falcon beatbox is always fun. Some people I've had on uh, multiple times. Um, but uh, I'm trying to think the best one. There's a uh, there's one uh, called uh, Klezma Four. They're from Poland, hmm. and uh, no cultural or religious uh, background in the music and that they just kind of learned it and it's kind of an electrified funky version and um, I I love their stuff and there there's another one in Italy that's uh, that's really great also so there's uh, uh, one of my favorites actually is uh, a group called Yemen Blues and uh, with uh, Ravid Kahalani, he's from Israel with a Yemenite uh, background and he mixes Middle Eastern rhythms with uh, jazz and blues from America. So um, he's got traditional uh, Yemenite instruments that he plays like, a, it's like a guitar kind of a thing, um, but he has a full string section and he has a uh, percussionist with Noodles and noodles of different percussion. He's got a horn section. Um, really interesting music. And I was just in a, a restaurant in London, uh, Middle Eastern restaurant in London, and they were playing one of his songs on their music on the on the PA system. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, oh, I know that one. <laughs> so you just never know. You know, and this is this is exactly the interesting part of why I started this podcast, Squawk Ident, is you know, here I was, the the newbie at the Legacy Carrier, you know, just happy to be here. I felt like I made it. My career is really where I wanted it to be. And now what? And I wanted to share my experiences and share the stories that I've heard out on the flight deck when you just ask a few questions with the by the person next to you and you find out a lot about them. And you're like, wow, that's really interesting because we're more than just pilots we're more than just every day we go to the airport you know we do our thing we file our flight plan whatever we're we're so much more we're we're come from like you mentioned earlier a just diverse and myriad of backgrounds from all over the world and when you start to just ask a couple questions with sincerity and find out about the person next to you their backgrounds and their interests were always fascinating to me. And I wanted to do a podcast that did this. What we're doing here today is, is we're talking about airplanes, we're talking about how we got in aviation, and we're talking about our interests and our passions. And thank you so much for, for sharing that with us. Um, so definitely, if you're interested, or, or maybe you've never heard of Klezmer music, and you're like, well, what are they talking about? Go and check out this podcast. Um, like you said, it's been a while since you posted anything. Uh, hopefully, I've been trying to get you to start up again every time we kind of talk i kind of hint to like oh, how's the well, podcast going <laughs> yeah you know I, i'm kind of competing for the studio time here so uh, 
as as you saw before we rolled but um uh i'm trying to uh find time when i can get back to that or do some more gorilla podcasting which i really love to do just uh take the the recorder and go out and meet somebody at a coffee shop or something and just ch- sit down and chat yeah now let's talk, and we mentioned this in the in the intro but what can you tell me about this production company your wife has the production company that you're working with and what about uh, eon as well yeah so uh she's uh had various careers along along the way uh in music and video production and was teaching uh digital media at community college for the last uh, 25 years so has always uh had some kind of uh first recording music recording set up she's done some children's music and the two albums that our uh band has put out uh we've recorded at the home studio and now she's uh they needed at the college they, they needed uh somebody to start doing teaching video so she learned video production herself and um now she does small projects uh for people and one of her main functions at um, her new company on reality is to put out videos demonstrating the capabilities of their uh, software platform so almost every day she's making some other kind of uh, video to demonstrate some feature of their product mm. so this augmented reality virtual reality uh, and what they term xr which is kind of a combination interchangeable with either of those um is a growing field you've heard the term metaverse there you know that's the new hot thing and they're on the ground floor of all this stuff so wow yeah it's it's pretty fun you saw the the video i helped make of of the triple seven cockpit uh people can find that maybe you want to link to that in your in your show notes Mm -hmm. and it it's uh you know sky's the limit on that thing for sure yeah and it's it's interesting and right up my alley and i do appreciate you sharing that with us too um at this point i'd like to just get into the q a i know we're, this is one of those podcasts that we're going a little longer than expected because we have such an interesting guest um but a couple of questions for you before we wrap it up so you've had a, a pretty interesting career uh, i'd say you're very fortunate to have had such a i'd say positive outlook on all of it uh, you haven't let the the ups and downs of the industry you know get in the way of how lucky we are to do this job what has been the biggest lesson so far uh for flying well flying it, it, it's all about the people right so um you have to be quick to uh make the people you're flying with comfortable and to show interest in in them personally and what they're doing other than just uh you know can they run the checklist and do the procedures right um because uh, they you need to be a team and you need to be on the same team you need to show the leadership and you know uh, beyond everything you do on on the airplane are they interesting enough are they willing do they find you interesting enough that they'll maybe they'll go out for dinner with you on the layover or um do something do something fun um you know while you're away from the cockpit i I was in london i ran into uh uh, now triple seven captain that had been a a fo with me uh who i was on my trip uh, we flew a trip to shanghai and i had uh 
my brother-in-law and his family had been spending a few years working in Shanghai and they, they would always come pick me up and take me out for dinner and go to the house. And I'd always invite the crew to go. And it's like, they, they didn't want to go very often, but, um, this fellow did, and he had a wonderful time and I ran into him. It's been five years, uh, since I've seen him and he remembered that experience. So, oh, yeah. um, I think that's the, the main thing is the interaction with the people as if we can all get through an emergency checklist, or we can all figure out an abnormal situation. We can all figure out how to deviate around the weather. And everybody knows their job really well. And it, it's, it's all a matter of, um, you know, getting some camaraderie and how well you get along and interact with, with the cabin crew, um, the dispatchers, everybody, maintenance people, um, you know, so you have to be, uh, you know, and I wasn't really a people person growing up and I was a little shy, but you know, this job forced me to, um, get better at that and flying with a lot of the captains when I was new, um, that had those attributes, uh, really helped me along the, along the way. Yeah. Uh, I could not second that sentiment any more. Um, I too. That's why I met, I met you in five minutes. You know, we got along really well because, you know, we both know how to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's something that I think this industry, it, for the most part, because not everybody's like that. We've all flown with those characters that, yeah. you know, they don't, they just sit there and go. Uh -huh. There there are those that this is work and this is their job and they don't want to think about it when they're not right. here. Um, they go home and they got plenty of other things to do and, you know, yeah, and that's fine. There, There's people like that in every career field, right? There's doctors that don't want to think about doctoring when they're off. So right. um, there's all kinds of people and you just have to find, you know, sometimes it takes a couple of days to find a way to connect with somebody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've flown with people that, you know, pretty silent for a couple of days. And on the third day, you bring up one different thing. And that's the one thing that really interests them. And then boom, they're open up. And then you look at them and so, go, where have you been? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah so, you know, the, like you're leaving, you're saying goodbye at the end of your trip and then something comes up that, that triggers that. And it's said, well, why didn't you tell me this two days ago? Yeah. You know, but yeah. you know, that that's the fun. I said, well, I'll, We'll see them again soon. You see everybody soon. Right. Now, Keith, uh, if, if some 18-year-old comes up to you and says, hey, I'm, you know, I'm okay at school and, I, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay, but I really am interested in being a pilot and I want to be a pilot, would you recommend this career field to someone who's got the big starry eyes and has the thrill of the polyester and if, wants to... If, if they have the starry eyes... Definitely. If if you have to do it, like some people, musicians, they, they have to do music. Uh, if you have to do flying, absolutely. It, if you're deciding between flying and being a lawyer and being a plumber or something, and you're, you're deciding based on the opportunities, let's say in, in, in flying, which are pretty good right now. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd say, get your feet wet, get started and and see if you like it uh it, if you've been thinking about it for a long time and you really don't um have other things that you're thinking about with greater weight then yeah absolutely dive in and and go for an aviation career yeah now what's been your favorite destination so far 
you know, I, I'm going to say Hong Kong. Yeah. Uh, Hong Kong is really cool. It's it's like Chinatown except bigger. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, they have such a rich culture, and all the cultures around the world have have gone there and set up, you know, restaurants. Some of the finest dining, you know, anywhere. They have a the famous uh, floating restaurant that's uh, pretty fun to go and visit. Um, you know, of course, they're not letting visitors in these days, and and there's yeah. no U.S. carrier that's operating there. But um, you know, I I kind of miss that. Uh, plus, you know, USC had had a uh, uh, an office and some activities going on in Hong Kong that I was uh, participating with. They have a, a active alumni association, mm. so that was pretty cool. Uh, Speaking of USC, the other thing I wanted to mention was, was that I've been um, speaking and mentoring some of the students there mm -hmm. uh, at the uh, engineering school because the program that I took uh, got dovetailed kind of into the School of Engineering, uh, as well as a separate school of uh, aviation safety and security now. Mm -hmm. uh, so I go and speak to the alumni, the, well, as an alumni, I go to speak to the undergraduates and the graduate programs there. Uh, as well as speaking with, uh, you're familiar with the AIAA? Um, I don't think so. An engineering society called the uh, American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Mm -mm. So that's where all the uh, engineers uh, belong. And uh, they have a student chapter there. I, I was a student uh, member when I, back when I was in college as well. And uh, so I go and speak to them about um, what I call an alternative engineer aviation engineering career you know going into piloting because the, a lot of these people uh want to go into aerospace engineering and help design air, aircraft and systems and things like that and i said well you know you'd be a much better engineer if you're also a pilot and um people with engineering backgrounds make really good pilots so you know i try to encourage them to uh consider an aviation career in addition or maybe instead of their engineering career mm -hmm. Now, the the program at USC is that a program for like a master's program, or is that a bachelor's program? What is that? Uh, well, they had both at the at the time, but uh, yeah, I think they're they have undergraduate, graduate, and uh, certificate programs. Oh, okay. Yeah, so anyone's interested can go to their website and can dig a little deeper. Right. Yeah. Now, in, in all your time. You've probably flown with some real pieces of work. Is there any particular pilot that you've flown with? And no names here, but uh, that it just was a bad situation. And how did how did that all transpire? And how did you handle it? Uh, no, there was there was one when I was uh, FO on the DC ten. There was one captain that uh, was a piece of work, and because of our relative seniority, um, I ended up getting paired with him a lot of the time and you just figure him out and um, try not to push the, the wrong buttons with him to set him off. And, and uh, um, you know, I know he, he was always tough on the, on the flight engineers and uh, anytime a flight engineer would bring up a, an issue, you know, he'd look over his shoulder and say, you know, what, what's going on. And, and uh, 
one time this friend of mine was the, the flight engineer and and he was bringing something up to this captain and i said oh here we go <laughs> and, you didn't, uh, you didn't so, warn your friend ahead of time what's that you didn't warn your friend ahead of time i i i think i forgot <laughs> Let's watch how this works out. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there was one other time with well, it's one of these guys that all the switches are mine and don't touch anything until I tell you, right? So, um, one one flight we were flying through a, a higher layer of, of cloud and and you know would have called to turn on the engine anti ice. So I reached up and turned on the engine anti ice. Looked over me and said, "I didn't tell you to turn on the engine any ice." And, he, and I said, "Okay." So I turned him off. So then, like three minutes later, he reaches over and turns on. So you know that sort of thing. Uh, one other time, we we were ascending. We we're going to Chicago. We descend and and go to idle in the descent, and the number two engine rolled back, um, you know, below minimum idle, and so everything tripped off. It looks like an engine failure. So we started seeing hydraulic lights, electrical lights, all the stuff. And uh, he said, well, I have an engine failure on the number two engine. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking, well, it just kind of rolled back. You know, it'll probably be fine at a lower altitude. But, you know, it, you shut it down. And and uh, I said, all right, well, we'll let him have his little emergency. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so... We came in and we landed, you know, made sure I told approach control we had an emergency and everything. And so we came in and, um, and of course, you always practice an engine out landing in whatever airplane it is. And it's a little easier in a three-engine airplane than a two-engine airplane. But in the two-engine airplane, or in the three-engine plane, when you have one out, you have to have a little bit extra thrust on the other engines. But he didn't on the approach. And... um so we impacted a little bit higher sink rate than would normally be expected. Uh, so, and then we taxied to the gate and we went to, uh, the maintenance immediately came out to check the airplane. They came out to attempt a restart on the plane, on the engine and started up immediately. <laughs> no problems. So, um, you know, could have attempted a restart at lower altitude, but yeah. Uh, he wasn't open to that suggestion, so. Yeah, sometimes better to that, just. That sort of thing. Yeah, like not you said. open to suggestions, right? So you have to be open to suggestions from your crew, you know, yeah. like go around or, you know, something like that. Yeah, that's, that's crucial. Um, and it's. And, and those people teach you as, as much as the, the good people, right? Exactly, because, yes. Because, you know, you learn kind of what not to do as, as well as what to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say is like, yeah, you, you, you've got to learn from those experiences too. You know, I like how you said, let him have his little emergency. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, we were you always know, I'm taught. Gonna, I'm going to protect us. I'm not going to let anything go, you know, wrong. Right. But, you know, nothing wrong with flying around on two engines and having a little, a little emergency, but right, you could undo that emergency in a moment's notice if you just, you know, said, hey, what if we tried to relight that engine? Right. You know, um, but no, oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great story. <laughs> now, uh, a final few questions here. Who has had the biggest influence in your career and why? You know, I, I'm going to go back to that uh, high school teacher uh, that, that ran our flying club at the high school because he, more than anybody, got us 
interested. And uh, um, even though we didn't touch an airplane, didn't go anywhere, you know, we, we'd go and visit the airport and the facilities and, and things like that. We had, had a pretty good network of uh, people in the, in the industry. But um, just to sit around and plot out cross countries and, and, you know, there was, I don't know, 20 of us and we'd see who did the best plotting and who did the closest calculation to what was going to be. Um, and that more than anything else, I think got, got us, uh, pointed in the right direction. He, he pointed me towards San Jose state mm -hmm. and, uh, cause there was other choices, Embry-Riddle and, and places like that at the time. But, uh, my family didn't have the resources to send me to that. So, uh, San Jose state, by the way, was $97 a semester. <laughs> Holy crap. <laughs> and I think I paid $1,500 for the full school year for the dorms and the three, three meal plan. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. $97. And I, we had, to, I had to take some loans to, to cover the, uh, the, the dorms and the, the meal housing, plan. Yeah. But, uh, Ugh. But of course, uh, my dad was great because he was paying for my flight training out of pocket. So, yeah. uh, oh, by the way, the, the paying my my flight training at Torrance with the Civil Air Patrol um, fellow I mentioned to you had the one fifty. He was charging us nine dollars an hour wet for the airplane and nothing for his instruction time. Wow, can you imagine? And so maybe that's I, another I reason. Spent in the neighborhood of five hundred dollars for my private. Oh my God. Maybe that's the reason. That's another reason, another hurdle. I mean, we, we mentioned not having, you know, the. It, it, it was a lot more accessible then. Yeah. Right. When, when you're paying close to $200 an hour for playing an instructor. Right. Um, it's not as accessible for most people. Right. And I think that's why that, uh, that opinion, because that's all it really is, that opinion yeah. that only rich people become pilots, is, it's not true. It's a. Uh, complete false uh, narrative to get into. Uh, my parents used to tell me that all the time. Oh, we're not that rich. You cannot be pilot. You know, and I, I love them dearly, but they, they believed those rumors. They believed that opinion. Um, and it wasn't until later that I knew that that wasn't the case. Anyone can do it. Yes, you might have challenges financially, uh, but there are always ways. You can work other yeah. jobs while you're training. You don't have to get your private pilot license and all your other ratings within 12 months. You only do that if you're in a program and you're in some kind of hurry for a career or you're all in, but you don't have to be. Some people pick up their private and then they just don't really use it and they get other jobs and they start a family well, and they move on and they come back. It used to be more of a, of a hobby. You get a private and you go fly around with your family and go have fun and take trips and do yeah. things. And that like having a boat, right? It's right. like people have boats. So they're not going to be commercial mariners, but, but they have a boat. Right. <laughs> Uh, or a motorhome or a motorcycle or w whatever. And people would have an airplane and go do airplane stuff. But, yeah. you know, I used to, we used to pay $19 an hour for 172, um, 30 for 182. Uh, when I got into multi, I was paying 63 an hour for a Duchess. Um, I got into the Baron, we were paying 95 an hour for the Baron, you know, so, which relatively speaking was expensive, but, you know, it, the the numbers the numbers have changed, but 
people's ability to to pay has also kind of been reduced as a result of that. So yeah, I think that's why the cadet harder. programs are so crucial now. I know United and Delta both have their own flight training facility where you know if you go to one of the you get accepted into their program, you have a guaranteed job or job interview at the end of it, and they help get you the financing. There are so many avenues. We can't just go, oh, well, it's too expensive. Put your hands up and walk away and decide to go, you know, be a plumber or electrician. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, there right. are always, like you said earlier, if they've got if you the stars. you want to enough, you find a way. Right. If they got the twinkle in their eye, it's going to happen. You know, they'll find a way. Um, and some, some methods are smarter than others. Some people get in a humongous financial debt um, because they're convinced they got to do this. Um, <laughs> yeah, all, all good now, 20 years in, but, um, yeah, it was, it was a huge burden for myself. I went to a flight school in, in Arizona. I did the whole 10 month program, um, with the mock ground school, airline ground school program. Cause uh, you have to have that. Um, I could have taken my time and kept my job where I was making decent money in my first career and kind of just worked my way through all my ratings, building my time. It would have taken me maybe an extra couple of years, but the grand scheme of things, after you look back on a long career, sometimes those decisions, you know, you look back and you go, well, yeah, I could have taken my time or I could have enjoyed flying that airplane or for that carrier a little longer, you know, um, those were good times. But unfortunately, none of us have that crystal ball. Yeah. So final question. Um, if you can go back in time and whisper just for a moment, in your own younger self's ear, what would you tell yourself? Uh, I tell myself, good job. You made the right choices. Um, what I knew about the industry was very, you know, not that much at the time. And I asked every airline person I found and said, you know, how did you get here? What did, what do you recommend? And of course, everybody had a different story. Um, uh, the military pathway is easy. And, uh, I did consider that, but I felt that, um, staying on the civilian route would be a faster track to the airlines. As soon as you get enough qualifications, you, you could go in the military. You had a window. You had to wait till you separated, and you know you had your five years or eight years. Sign up for another tour or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then you have to hope when you get out that the airlines are still hiring. And uh, if they're not hiring, then you're now you're out of the military and you don't have a job, and you got to wait till the hiring cycle starts again. So, uh, you know, I ultimately chose to, even though I, I was working at the Marine Corps base and interacting with Marines every day. And uh, they all advised me about what, what to do if I wanted to go in the military. The, the Marines that they were, um, in the Marines, your, your main job is your ground job. It's not the flying part. And they had a requirement that you had to have a minimum of four hours a month to maintain your flight qualification. And I'm like, uh, no, I want to fly more than four hours a month. And so, uh, you know, I chose against that. I had also applied for FAA air traffic control as a backup and I passed that test and I, I skipped, uh, four different class dates that they offered me for air traffic control. Mm -hmm. And 
finally after the fourth one, they said, well, you're not really interested in being an air traffic controller, are you? I said, eh, no, I guess not. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I think I hit all the benchmarks along, along the way at the right time. Um, certainly having the master's degree helped because uh, another box to check on the application. And then uh, at the airlines, uh, because again, I'm competing with with uh, military people that are always always the first preference. But by the time I got to Legacy, I had a master's degree in 4,200 hours. The only the only thing I would have done differently was maybe to get my uh, CFI sooner, uh, because I was also doing uh, NIFA. Uh, National Intercollegiate Flying Association. They would have competitions, uh, spot landings, and things like that. And uh, their rule was that you couldn't participate if if you were a CFI. So, uh, and I really wanted to do it, so I delayed doing the CFI uh, a year until after I graduated, um, so I could participate in that. Other than that, um, I, I think I did the best I could, and I would probably do it all the same way again. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for for sharing your story with us, uh, your insights on aviation and all that you do. Uh, so anyone that's out there that wants to learn more about you and the production company and the, and the podcast, where can they find you? Uh, let's see. Well, uh, social media is the easiest way. Uh, uh, just look up uh, Klesmer Podcast for me. Look up uh, Eon Reality, uh, E-O-N reality uh and renzone so you can uh, r-e-n-z-o-n-e you can look it up anywhere and uh look forward to hearing from people yeah and just one final thank you to you uh for coming on the show it's been an honor to be able to sit here and listen to your story uh also thank you to alex for joining us earlier in the podcast good luck alex with all your training out there um i know you have all our listeners are, are rooting for you so keep up the good work, um, and please help us out by sharing this podcast online and with your friends. Be sure to subscribe or follow the Squawk Eyed In podcast on whatever platform you are listening on. We also love receiving audio and video listener feedback. You can send us uh, feedback via an email or, or even from the link on our website, and that's at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number eight, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, number three, Yankee.com. There you'll find audio archives, photos from the flight line, guestbook, photo tab, pilot shop, and much, much more. You can also contribute financially to our program right there from our homepage. Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram users can find us under Squawk Ident Podcast or Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident. And thank you to all of you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there, be safe, and take care of each other. Bye, everyone.
fly this airplane and land it. No, not a chance. No, not a chance. No, 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 not a chance.